Good morning. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour, a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your audience-submitted questions. Second hour is typically a deeper dive into a topic, and today we're very excited to have the team from Zoom, Andy Carluccia, Jonathan Cocatello, and Sam Kokaiko, all coming to us direct from San Jose. Will they be taking us literally backstage after the event to talk about what happened at Zoomtopia? That's our second hour. Uh, the first, as always, is our Q&A, and let's dive right into it. Mitch, what have we got today? Thank you, Bill. First in from TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yesterday, Alex mentioned it's possible to do live video with an iPhone and have the Memoji as the video output. Can he share how to accomplish this task? Alex can help us, Alex. Okay, well, we'll see how this goes. So there's a couple of different ways that you can display this, and, and one is in... Um, uh, one is using uh, clips, but the other one that, that works is messages. And what you have to do is you open up messages. Let me see if I can do this here. Um, let's see if we cut. So you see this, I'm, I just started a new message and I go, oh, I want to use the camera and I want to hit, I, I'll hit the effects. So now you see the effects there and I'm now going to hit Memojis and I can select Memoji and uh, there you go. So now I'm, you know, the, what you're going to have to do is I might have to pull back a little bit and, but you can see, I don't know if the emoji, no, oh no, I won't go behind the mic. <laughs> so anyway, um, but, uh, but that's, that's how you do it. Now, you, the, the, unfortunately, Apple doesn't do a kind of a clean feed of it. Um, so, so that's the, that's the one thing that I would say that it'd be great to get, but you usually end up pulling it back a little bit and then slicing it off uh, to have that there. Um, so, so that's kind of the basic way of getting it into something. Uh, and, and again, I think that that one of the things that Apple has done really well is that, you know, the emoji looks pretty good um, in compared to, I don't know, a lot of other emoji styles. Great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that Apple has somehow figured out a way to generally, I, I think that the most of the other emojis that I've seen so far uh, have, um, and if you if you open up your mouth a little bit more, you get a little bit more addiction. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but I think that Apple kind of gives you a, a way to be a cooler version of yourself. I don't think that most of the emojis <laughs> are a cooler version, looking cooler than than yourself. And so I think that's one of the challenges there. So, Alex, does um, it work if you flip the phone, uh, rotate the phone? Does it work in widescreen as well? It does. Oops, I got my hand in front of it there. there yeah, you there, and you can kind of see the production there. So, yeah, it'll work that way as well. But you still have you know a lot of uh, debris on the on the on the image. So that's the you know that's the challenge is the debris. So nice so anyway. demo, everybody. Yeah. And so the answer is yes, you can emojify yourself if that's yeah. a word. It's and, again, the, the problem with it really is, is that it doesn't give you a clean feed. It'd be really good if Apple gave you a clean feed out um, to make that work. But that hasn't happened yet. You could, could you, I guess you just could make yourself smaller and crop the image, yep. literally just crop the sides in. But yeah, um, it's still, it's very cool. Very, very cool. Though. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on to the next question. And this one's in from James Hutchinson in Dublin, Ireland. Pluggable have released a new USB-C or USB 3.0 quad HDMI adapter, which they say will work with M1 and M2 Max. Is anyone still using the pluggable devices in their workflow, and will they be upgrading? David Passon is going to start us out here. David? Yeah, I am using a pluggable right now. I actually use it uh, to get 
um, with a cam link. So I, I will grab the HDMI feed out of what my computer, plug it into a cam link, and then bring that in so that I can um, bring, for example, this, this um, website in as a camera source. This looks really interesting. I immediately added it to my Amazon cart. Um, it, it, they, they do have some, um, what do you call it, uh, caveats here um, that, uh, you know, it's going to affect performance, software compatibility limitations. Um, so it's, but boy, for, uh, I don't have a need for four monitors right now, but it really does look interesting. Nice. Alex, you have thoughts? Yeah, I have a couple of the pluggables and I played with them a little bit. I found them to be a little quirky. I mean, I think that was kind of, I think that's the word that I, that would have them. And, um, and I, and I think that they will work. Um, and I think they're cost effective. Um, I think that if you're looking for these to use as production, I'm, you know, once I started testing the SDI extreme with, uh, the, the Sonnet and the, and the Declan cards, I mean, for an actual video production, I don't think I would use pluggables as a, you know, I think that for, um, you know, for, for a real production that I was, that I was dealing with, but I, I do find them, I'm probably going to still, I'm, I, I may still buy the four, uh, because I want to use it as a service, um, use it with zoom ISO as kind of a services thing for all of my monitors in my, in my office. And so, so I think that, um, I think the pluggables could be good. I just wouldn't put them into my signal, you know, so I'm using them to spread out a bunch of outputs from a Mac mini to a bunch of monitors so that I can take, for instance, the WLM meters and put them on a monitor, put, take the slate and put it on another monitor, take, you know, put the active speaker on the, on this one and do all those things that I can do with zoom ISO. That's interesting to me, um, you know, uh, to, to use the pluggables for putting them into my signal flow for a, 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 an event is not, not as interesting. Uh, and, uh, oh, I think that takes care of everybody. Let's move on to the next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York asked morning guys. Would you use Amazon S3 as a content distribution network for private video library? Alex, we'll start. Alex? Uh, yeah, I think you have to decide what you're going to use it for. So is it storage? Is it, are you going to make it available to other people? Are you going to, do you, do you need to use it all the time? So if, if you're just trying to store raw data, for instance, uh, you know, something like Glacier may be better or Backblaze could be, a, could be a good solution. If you are trying to make it available so you can share it with other people, Vimeo might be a better, better choice, you know, to keep your library in. And, and it might be a mixture of all of those things. Um, so it's just a matter of thinking through that. John Wallace. Yeah, I think it's important to consider that S3 isn't a CDN. That is a storage mechanism. You would have to use something like CloudFront from Amazon if you're going to see an Amazon ecosystem to distribute that video outside of just storing it. So it's just something to consider. Um, definitely recommend using Vimeo or YouTube private links. Those are easy things to, to kind of share video if you're just looking for a way to store something and, and share it with a private group of people. Guy Cochran. Yeah, one of the things you want to be aware of is just how the uh, embed code and things like that work, because if you put a file up there, you can have somebody download it, you can have them display it, but and play it back inside of a web browser, but it's much easier to use a front end like the other guys are saying, uh, Vimeo or something. But I use Wistia because Wistia allows you to uh, see the heat maps of where somebody might have rewound or where somebody might have skipped. So I really enjoy uh, those back end little features and you could uh, inline embed so there's it generates the embed code for you uh if you do decide to keep it on amazon be aware of the uh transfer in and out charges i got rocked with some huge bills when i put up some uh raw files for people to uh look at some uh camera tests that we put up and i got hit with 400 hundred dollar bills a month until i discovered uh whoops i shouldn't have let the folks in this user group download my red raw and zcam file so be aware of storage transfer costs 
And I've had a similar experience, particularly when I moved to Vimeo, what I found is that it really made it easier to embed videos for other websites and things like that. They have a really robust process. You can get that embed code. And unlike, uh, for example, YouTube, in the corporate world, I found um, YouTube is often blacklisted on corporate websites, particularly if you want to distribute content to a client in a corporation, but they usually don't block Vimeo as readily. So I found it much easier to get content to team members in the corporate world behind firewalls, sometimes problems, but not as much as I as certainly putting a YouTube link up or something like that. Let's go to the next question. Next up from Stan Chan in San Francisco, California. Stan asks recommendations for a Matty to Dante converter for an ATEM constellation. Alex. Uh, what we use in our office is the um, is the RME uh, Digiface. Um, so that's been what we've been using to convert from uh, Matty and to, to, to Dante. And uh, it's worked real well. Remember that the Constellation, I do not think is, uh, it does two out in, in, I think, 32 in or 64 in, but it's still only two out, I believe. Um, um, and so it's not really a full interface. But if, you try, if you're trying to get Dante uh, really into it or you're getting those two channels out, you can use that. And the RME inter, uh, Digiface has been really successful for us. Excellent. Next question. Matteo Missouri from ANSI France asked, using Zoom and webinar mode only, what is the panel advice on welcoming checking audio for panelists who arrive while the webinar is on? Any news on breakout rooms for webinar mode, not events? Alex? I don't think we have any news about the yet about the breakout rooms. I mean, we're, we're hope, hoping that someday we'll have those. We, we were promised those a couple years ago, I think. Uh, not that we're bitter. Um, anyway, so the um, uh, the... The way that we've been experimenting with that is using backstage with events, as you said, not events. So we'll get out of that. And that has been a little bit rocky as well. The backstage has been, if someone comes in with a web browser, um, they, there's a potential that they'll just show up as an attendee. <laughs> so that's a, um, and, and so that's a, that's been a little bit more problematic on our end. Um, the way that we've done it for years is to prep people in another, uh, in, a, in a meeting. So we prep them in a meeting. Um, we uh, then, you know, and, and we make sure that everything's just right. And, and then, and that's actually a little easier because now we can talk to them and everything else. And then in the chat, we give them a link to the webinar um, and we are usually on comms and tell someone, okay, they're coming in right now and boom, they pop up. We, you know, we, we grab onto them and put them into the, um, into the system. And that's, that's usually how we, how we process that. And David Paskin. It's not going to work every time, but tell people they have to show up early. They have to show up a half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour early so that we can do all the checks, get them settled, and then go yeah, for to, it. Yeah, to, to, uh, to David's point, minimum 20 minutes. Like minimum is 20 minutes that we ask for, and we'll push pretty hard for it. And if they, if they say, well, I can't, I mean, if they have an assistant, it's fine for their assistant to come in. We're just trying to do all the tech stuff that is necessary, but we want someone minimum of 20 minutes. When we did Hangouts, we did uh, 90 minutes. We wanted them to check in. They didn't have to stay there the whole time, but we wanted to check in 90 minutes early. And that made, meant that they had to be wherever they were going to be 90 minutes before, which was a part of what we were doing. Um, and then we wanted to have them on all the, the whole time from 20 minutes out, you know, so that, that we knew that they were there. Uh, it, to David's point, getting there early will solve 95% of the problems that you'll have with, the, with, with someone coming in, um, you know, getting that 20 minutes is, is you can, you can fix a lot of things or decide that you can't fix them, um, in a relatively fast, fast way. And then the other thing is, is to have check check-ins. We check in with everybody, uh, one, two, three days before the event to make sure that they're ready to go. If they're presenting in front of people, we're going to 
do a check-in with them. And it's a single check-in, not a group check-in. Nice. All right. Next question. Lucas Herzog from Maine's asked if I needed to get three to four SDI signals from one location to another over the public internet, preferably over SRT, what hardware, encoders, and decoders would you recommend? Perhaps a lower budget solution as well. Guy's going to help himself. out. Guy? Yeah, I really like the Epifan Pearl Nano. I'm testing right now the Osprey Talon, which is uh, the same model that is basically the Elemental. Um, that model uh, can do 4K. So one of the things you can do is send up a quad split. So use something to to send one feed that's 4K, but then quad split it and then extract those 1080s out of each quadrant on the other side. So you're sending one signal and everything's in time. So that's one way to do it. High Vision also makes the Makito that basically does the same thing, four separate ins, and on the other side you would have four outs. So uh, Matrox also has one as well. So those are a couple options. Uh, Cheapy would be some, there's some that can be dangerous on Amazon that you might want to give a try, but uh, I can't speak to the reliability. Uh, Data Video also has one that I'm testing out, uh, the decoder that seems very solid. Uh, I haven't tested their encoders, just their decoder. And Alex. And on the cost-effective side over the public internet, LTN is pretty well known around the world to, to handle. You're basically, but you're basically, it's a more expensive solution. You're putting individual uh, units um, into, into that system. I don't know if they would stay in sync as well as what Guy recommended um, to do that, but, that, but that, that's what a lot of folks use for a cost-effective solution. And then the non-public internet is the switch. And I think that takes care of that question. Next one up. From David Brady in New York, New York, what is Commenda? Oh, I'm glad he weighed in. Alex, you're the Commenda. only person here who I'm deeply understands. With all these questions, yeah, yeah. Commenda is the sister app to Makana. Um, in fact, we may end up, um, you know, rebranding what we're doing here as as Commenda as Makana starts to do what it was designed to do. <laughs> so that we're uh, things are moving faster now because of uh, Twitter. Um, anyway, so um, so the uh, but Commenda is basically managing all the questions. And what we did is we have uh, Commenda is. We now have the panel view from what we have here in uh, Zoom, so you can open it up. It's not quite ready to release, but we're 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 pretty close now. So, um, but we'll start having the panelists uh, experimenting with it in the next uh, couple of days or next week, um, and seeing how how the experience is for them. But they'll be able to basically raise their hand, see things, see all the things that they see in the center column, just the center column down the side. Um, to um, and and we'll, we're going to keep on expanding from there if it, if it works well. John Preda, you have a thought? Is that the proper spelling there, Alex? It is. It is. So it's Commenda, K-O-M-E-N-D-A. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, Shona. Shona is the lang uh, primary language in Zimbabwe for comments. <laughs> so oh, there you very, go. Very, very to the point. <laughs> so you shouldn't say Commenda comments. <laughs> right. It's just, yeah, Commenda. <laughs> it's, like saying com it's like when you say chai tea, you know, it's, yeah. it's <laughs> saying TT. You know, it's approved so, by the so. Department of Redundancy Department. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, let's go on to the next question. From Gilberto Espichi from Santa Cruz, Bolivia, I've been checking out low-budget wireless transmitters for a remote camera. And I'm between an Axun Cineview HE and the Hollyland Mars 300. Any comments or suggestions? And unfortunately, no one has raised their hand to comment on this. I guess nobody has direct experience. Alex, you had some thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think that the one that most of us have had probably more experience with is the Hollyland, um, as opposed to the Ascension, uh, Ascend, Ascension, um, Ascend, Ascend. As soon, X, 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 X soon? X soon. That's that's X a soon. strange spell. Um, but so I think that I think we're probably uh, would probably from a, a familiarity perspective uh, go towards the Hollyland. Um, there's a little bit more, you know, than some of the other 
transmitters, the Hollyland has a little, a little bit more latency, uh, and I don't know about the Axon, so I'm not sure where where that uh, where that one would sit. Okay, well, hopefully that helped you, Alberto. Let's move on to the next question. Vic Hernandez, Springfield, Missouri, asked Alex mentioned Chef's Table on Netflix. Like to recommend The Mind of a Chef with David Chang on Prime. Breaking Bread does build community. What food-related TV or movie do you recommend? And Nigel raises his hand first. So, Nigel, what's up? It's, it's, there's a lot to go with here. Obviously, Bake Off is the most important program on television. But after that, maybe uh, Top Chef, uh, if you've not watched it and you're into cooking, is great. But there are two David Chen uh, programs I would really focus on as well. One is uh, Ugly Eats, which I think is great. But there's a series on Hulu. He seems to jump around the different streamers. There's a series on Hulu. I have to get the name right. It's The Next Thing You Eat. There's only six episodes. And it's the one uh, food TV program that at the end of it, my wife and I sat and talked about probably for an hour after each episode. Because it really brings up a bunch of issues around ghost kitchens, around uh, you know meat alternatives, with a completely different light I had not thought of before. And I think that's worth the time. Nigel, might that have been the Great British Bake Off that you were suggesting at the beginning of this? Uh, of course. Okay, just wanted to make sure if people are looking for <laughs> it, like, Alex. It's like saying the British, when I'm in, when, when we worked on the British, on, on the Opened, uh, when we would say the British Open, they were like, it's the Open. <laughs> Like it is not. It is not the British Open. <laughs> we were here first. So anyway, so the uh, um, anyway the um, you know some of the many of us have learned how to cook uh, watching Good Eats with Alton Brown. So um, so I would recommend it. If uh, it was it was interesting. I had an interaction with Alton Brown on um, about uh, connections. We were talking about um, you know the connections, and he evidently really binged on connections before he built good eats so good eats is kind of like connections for food you know so uh, and and the personality just makes it a lot his personality and uh, you really understand it um uh, jiro uh dreams of sushi is a is a movie that everybody should watch if they like sushi at all um it's an incredible thing about about the art there uh, forks over knives or is by michael pollan is is pretty um pretty useful uh and and it really starts to have you think through <laughs> What you're eating. It forks over knives. Probably the book and the movie, or the show, probably was the most instrumental in me slowly moving away from anything that comes in a box. You know, so uh, we're almost to nothing now. Um, you know, almost all to raw materials because I just don't trust the food supply anymore. So, um, so the uh, in including to restaurants or anything else. And so I'll do it every once in a while. I won't do it regularly. Um, and so, um, but I think it's a it's a useful uh, movie to see. Um, yeah, those are those are some of the ones I think about. Chill. I think the uh, yeah I I think the one that drives me crazy because I I get hungry and I've already gained ten pounds. Stanley Tucci's Discovering Italy on CNN Sunday nights. Uh, Stanley travels uh, uh, Italy in all its forms and uh, takes us to often uh, uh, not seen restaurants and places. And the food they sh he shows everything from uh, you know going out and getting it to preparing it and then enjoying it. And my stomach grumbles halfway through it, so I know it's a good show. John Wallace. Uh, I really enjoyed the chef show with uh, John Favreau and Roy Choi. It was a great kind of experience of different restaurants around the U.S. Uh, and just kind of getting their, their take on ingredients and how much it matters and to the end product of food. Did that spin off the movie Chef, which uh, Favreau yeah, did? Yeah, it's the uh, John Favreau and then Roy Choi was the guy who instructed them on, on how to do it. They built a relationship from that uh, and then kind of had fun eating around the U.S. Nice. Alex? 
Uh, one other one that's worth seeing, it's not really, it's not really, um, it's about farming, not cooking, but I think obviously they're, they're very related, uh, is, um, is there's a DVD and I don't know if you can, I don't know where you can watch it online, but Polyface Farms, um, was, was highlighted in, um, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Paul, Michael Pollan. <laughs> obviously, I read a lot of Michael Pollan. Um, anyway, the, uh, but it's, it's an amazing story of someone who built a totally, self-contained farm that, you know, all the inputs and outputs are all, you know, you know, working together and, and the, how he's figured that out has been, has been pretty interesting. Also, we didn't mention Hell's Kitchen, which is just a lot of fun. Like, I don't watch it to learn anything. I just watch it to be entertained. The British version of it is way rougher and way more fun than the American version. Uh, I'm not going to make the comment I was going to make. Anyway, yes, <laughs> the, the food TV is a fascinating thing and food movies. Let's move on to the next question. Yes, I love Gordon's uh, expletives. Anyhow, Steve Uroff from Madison, Wisconsin asked, is there any way to zoom and reduce the field of view when using continuity camera? Pinch to zoom isn't available, and it's not within the control center. David Paskin has a thought. David? I don't think there is, and I was really excited about continuity camera, and I turned it off last week. If you live in Zoom, if you have a, a consistent Zoom meeting open on your computer and you walk away from your computer, then come back to your computer, every time you have to click the pause or disconnect, it's, it, and your phone gets warm, it, it's, it was just so frustrating, I just turned it off. Okay, uh, next question. From David Paskin in Miami, Florida, and here on our panel, what is that adorable little mic Guy Cochran is using? <laughs> Guy Cochran is going to answer Golly. that. I'm surprised David isn't. Well, I've, I've been blessed enough to be able to visit here to Monterey Bay where I'm in John Idelson's studio. And he has this little $32 Samson Go mic is the name of it. It sounds pretty decent, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I was worried. But if you guys give me the thumbs up, I guess it's working okay. It's very clear. It's cutting through. We can hear every single thing you're saying. doesn't have a lot of bottom end, but for well, articulation. I think if you put it right to, I'd love to hear what it sounds like when it's right to the side of your mouth. Cause it does pick up, it's got a very large diaphragm. So I would turn it and then I would turn it, no, uh, the other uh, or that side. It's, okay. it's this arm that, uh, oh, got it. Okay. the way that it, yeah. All right. So okay. let me see. How about right there? If I put it to the side and it's actually, you want me to go lower, probably right about there. Yeah. Check one, two. Hey, 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 I'm talking in from Monterey Bay, California into a $32 microphone that you guys are intrigued with. And it might. And is your original sound on? Original sound is off. Yeah, try turning that on. Uh, I can hear it. Let me see if I can do that. Uh, audio settings. And original sound for musicians is now on. Coming in from Monterey Bay, California, talking to a $32 Samson Go mic. And it is original sound is now on for musicians. What do you guys think? pretty good. <laughs> it's, it's pretty like, good. It might be the best $32 mic I've heard. All so right. um, I'm a winner. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. It is super sensitive to plosives. So when you first came on, if it if that diaphragm is anywhere near your the front of your your face, it it we well, heard big big hits there. But to the side, it sounds really good. It's they need to make a really cute little uh, windscreen for it. Yeah, or just put it to the side. <laughs> so I think it's, 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 no. it's great. Sounds great. All right. Next, uh, oh, Mitchell Hill wanted to weigh in on this. Oh, I was going to agreeing with you, Bill. It needs a little fuzz. It needs a hundred dollar fuzzy on a thirty dollar mic. 
<laughs> put it in a blimp, put it in a cage, and it'll be perfect. Uh, let's move on to the next question. John Wallace from Pontiac, Michigan. Has anyone tested the new Elgato FaceCam Pro? The larger sensor and saving the camera settings to the unit itself have me intrigued. John Preto is going to help us out here. John? I subscribe to a channel, Epos Vox, the streamer guy. I value his uh, his channel. And he just reviewed, I just watched this like uh, two two days ago, and he reviews seven of the latest web cameras, including that one and the... Um, and the, what's the one we like? The Insta360 link as well is in that is in that review. It's a great video. I just put the link in the chat room. What did he say? What did he say? Uh, he liked it. Did, do we know what the the uh, sensor size is? I can't remember what size the sensor size is. I believe it's slightly larger than the half inch that is in the Insta360. Okay. It's one step up and the Sony. Because uh, I find it odd that they don't tell us. Like there's nowhere, it doesn't seem like there's anywhere on the website that tells us where the. They tell you what sensor they're using. I mean, I had to go look up what sensor. I I haven't been able to find it. That's, yeah. Interesting. Well, um, I'm also noticing at the same time here to give you guys a little bit more more time in case somebody's trying to look it up, um, that we are burning through these questions at an amazing pace. So if you have thoughts, if you have additional questions, pop them in. We have quite a few questions for the second hour that are already in today, but we could use a few more for the first hour. So hopefully that gave people some time to look a little bit farther. And if not, we'll come it's back. A, to it's this. a Starvis, um, uh, Starvis sensor. Um, and it does look like it is, um, it depends on which one they're using. Uh, it could be larger than one inch um, or, it, or it could be a little larger than half an inch. So it's, like it's one um, over one eight. Oh, oh, one over one eight. Yeah, it would be slightly larger than a, than a half inch sensor. Interesting. Well, there you go. So everybody seems to like the way that guys sound. So uh, something to investigate at that price point. It's easy to give it a try and see if it works for you. Let's move on to the next question. From David Paskin in Miami, Florida, and on the panel, watching Zoomtopia sessions solidified for me uh, that beyond good audio and video, presenter presence is absolutely vital for event success. Anyone else? Guy Cochran. Yeah, there was a couple sessions where I was like, this is a little too mechanical, too robotic. And it's like, remember, you're talking to people. These are people. These are your friends. Uh, And for the people that we're talking um, from afar, like Andy came into one session and he was on a screen, I was wondering if they were actually showing him the audience. I would have preferred for him to be able to see us. So he's talking to us and he's calling out like, you know, yellow sweater girl in the second row. And you feel like you, you know, you stand up a little taller and you, you feel like you're a part of it. But yeah, I think people, uh, they rehearsed. I heard that some of these, the stage was set up like a month in advance and they were rehearsing and testing and you could tell who was polished and who really got it down. But I think that's part of relaxing is when you get, uh, so well rehearsed that you could do it in your sleep or if, if some, emergency pops up beforehand and you don't let it get to you, you know, because you you're, you're now in your rhythm, but if you're not well rehearsed, you're, you're going to run into problems. And if you don't care, if you're, if you're not really remembering that you're talking to people, then you might run into issues there as well. Nigel. I don't know if it's still true, but Wills used to say 70% of your effectiveness is what you look like. 23% is what you sound like. And 7% is what you say. And I don't believe that's any different across Zoom. And I think that's partly what this this crowd has proved. And so it's, it's very clear when people are completely focused on what they're saying and not how they're saying or what they look like when they're saying it. Alex. 
Yeah, I, it, doing pr- presentations well is really hard. You know, like it's it's really hard to to do what you know to have that there. Uh, it is for the companies that do it well. And I, I would say that, you know, I think that the people that, because we were watching these, I didn't get to watch all of them. I thought Andy did really well. I thought Sam did really well talking when he was talking through, you know, um, kind of breaking things down. But what you had are people who really understand their product and are just talking about their product. <laughs> you know, like in there, And they don't have to come up with, they don't have to come up with uh, all the stuff they were able to, I, I feel like they were able to largely write or just be themselves. And, and I think that they did really well in that area. I think when they're talking about, uh, you know, for the the uh, more wide keynotes and the more generalized stuff, um, I think that the problem is, is you have a lot of people writing those and then you're trying to follow along. And, you know, uh, I think there's only two people in the world that have ever been really good at that. And that was Steve Jobs and Mark Benioff. I think we talked about it yesterday. Um, and Mark Benioff went through an incredible amount of training to, to get to get there. Steve Jobs just did what he did. Um, so I think that the... Um, I think that there's just not that many people good at it. And we need to really think about whether keynotes really matter or sessions really like session processes. When Apple, I think we talked about this a little bit, maybe I don't know where, but when Apple moved WWDC to moved all their sessions to video, they got about 10 times better. You know, like, so all those sessions of people standing up on stage and nervous in front of a lot of people and starts and stops and some things work and some things don't, they switched them over to video. I don't, I don't know whether they're going to go back or not. Maybe they will. Maybe someone will persuade them and I'll be, they'll do it one year, I think, if they do it because it's so, the problem is now that we're used to watching movies of what people want to talk about, it's so hard. And I think we have to remember that part of the lens that we're looking through is that it's so hard to watch anybody on stage now because the content density is too low. So this isn't a problem for Zoom. This is a problem for Samsung and Google and everybody else, Microsoft and everybody else doing these, these events where we're going to broadcast out something from a stage. It just doesn't work anymore <laughs> because we're used to, and the, and the company that's primarily ruining that for everybody is, is Apple because Apple is putting out a movie and that movie costs more than the most people's conventions, you know, to, to do that one movie. And it looks great. It sounds great. And you're like, oh, that's, and, and many of us watch it. You can't compete with a movie on stage, you know, and we now, you know, and so the thing is, is they, I think we're going to see the, the, the sessions, you know, what we should be, we've been talking about this for two years, sessions go to video, then we do Q and A, like that's, you know, like make a great video that puts your stuff forward and then answer people's questions. David Paskin has a thought. This has kept me up for the past two nights. And and so, uh, Nigel, you're next in the queue, so just cut me off if I dray on. Um, I was not, the keynotes were fine. They're fine. It was the sessions and and so many props to Zoom for all the amazing work that they're doing. I found myself leaving every single session after five or 10 minutes. I just, I couldn't. Um, from, From a technical perspective, I wish... I don't need a full body shot if I'm a virtual participant. Show me their face. I don't know why they kept the camera so far back so often, giving me the full body shot. And I need energy from from these presenters. I, I think you're right that that Sam was one of the best that I saw because he is energized about his product. He's excited about it. And so many of these presenters were perhaps uncomfortable or, or worried or this or that. And I just, I wasn't feeling the love and I, and I was so excited about what they were announcing and I wanted them to be excited about it too. And I, I just wasn't getting that. Understood. Nigel. 
Yeah, I just wanted to add that I, I'm planning an event for, for January, which is mostly a physical event, which we can discuss why, but it, it has to be a physical event. And I watched the start of Zoomtober again, great content, great products. I, I mean, no disrespect to any of that. What struck me was my first hour of my physical event was entirely wrong and that we've completely broken that model. So I've gone back to my agenda and worked out really just how Alex said, is how do I get the content density changed? So the first thing is is packed full of nutrients and I work out how to do the rest another way. And Alex? Yeah, and, and I think that um, one of the things that that I, I it was a real eye opener. I went to um, TED Africa. This was a, you know, this was in 2007 and it changed the way that I thought about all events after that, because one of the things that Ted does is there aren't any tracks. There is one session. We have a shared experience of what that session is. Um, there's actually a lot of breaks so people can stop and talk, you know, so there's, so basically Ted runs for an hour and a half. So there's like three or four presenters and then they break for like an hour and a half and then they come back and do it. It's not about packing everything into as and everyone's part of that and it means that at every break we're all talking about the same thing we just saw you know whoever you know whoever was speaking um you know there you know jane goodall just did something so now we're all talking about you know chimpanzees and we're talking about whatever those those things are and i never i i couldn't look at i mean even though i then did worked on you know 200 <laughs> events after the I mean, large events that have keynotes and everything else um i never forgot that. And when I designed them, I designed them all as a single track. And one of the things that's really interesting is you got to decide what tracks, you know, in, instead of having all these tracks, what if you had one track that had all the resources? Problem, the problem with tracks is now I've got six rooms that I have to put gear and people and things. And that's a huge expense, you know, whereas if you take, what if you had, what if Zoomtopia had a track we're going to do the main one. We're going to put all of our energy into it. We're going to put the biggest titles of what we're going to do into that for the next day or two or whatever we're going to do, if you still want to do that. And the rest of them are on Zoom. <laughs> it turns out that they've got this huge product <laughs> and you could go for weeks, you know, and that's what we saw Apple do last year with um, some of the developer support stuff. They did all their talks. None of the talks sat over top of each other because we're no longer constrained by time and space. You know, we don't, we can run something for three months, you know, and, and educate people on it. Or we could run it for two weeks where it's running all the time and people can, can come in and then it's designed for them and it really works. And I think that the idea of packing all these tracks is based on the fact that we had to bring everybody in. They had to pay for a flight. They had to pay. We didn't have Zoom. You know, and, and we and we had to pay for a flight. They had to pay for their hotel. They can't keep coming back and forth. They can't stay here for two weeks. But Zoom has erased that requirement. And but we're still stuck in. We're still you know a lot of stuff is still stuck in the past. And I think that I think we'll we'll see that evolve over the next. And I think that that how it evolves will lean heavily on this group. You know, and what we do and how we push the push the envelope. Mitch. I always, always uh, have a opening video to set up the presenter. It could be a short thing. It could be a, a five-minute thing. It's something that sets the tone in the room uh, that provides a jumping-off point for the uh, the presenter. Because without that energy, um, it's it's the presenter's trying to do zero to 60 uh, in just a few seconds and get the people's attention. And it's not always easy for somebody to do that. So if you have a good... Uh, presentation that just sort of gets the tone going, 
maybe it's fun, maybe it's energetic, maybe it's inspirational, whatever it is, give them something to, to, to work from. I just had a recent uh, production I did for a client. Um, it's their 50th anniversary, and the president is a friend of mine. He's, I said, what do you plan on doing when you go in front of all those people in the ballroom and the governor's there and all these folks? Uh, he said, well, I'm just going to go up to the microphone and start my presentation. I said, first of all, you're going to have a hard time getting people to shut up uh, and pay attention because not many people can command that kind of intensity uh, when they come on stage. Just, let's do a retrospective. Let's make it fun. Let's have moving music. And uh, he did that, and he came and thanked me afterwards and said, boy, he just you made me look like a million bucks because I came off of something that set the emotional tone for the meeting. So that always works best. Guy, your thoughts? Yeah, know your audience as well. Make sure that you know who's out there. Is it a house of worship crowd? Is it, is it a corporate crowd? Is it educators? Because then you can tailor your presentation to them and you can talk directly to them. The other thing that I noticed when some of the presenters were uh, speaking, they were speaking to everywhere. Their eye contact was all over the place. And I was like, oh man, I wish that they had set up a uh, prompter that was large enough for them to see what was going on so that they're looking into their eyes. Like right now I have this little Insta360 and I have David Paskin right behind the Insta360 so I can look right at David. Uh, and if David starts nodding off or looking to the side, I, I'm like, whoa, whoa, why is he nodding off looking to the side? So that's the other thing is what, what are people doing on the other side? Because if you're looking at them and they're not paying attention and you're like, uh-oh, am I losing my audience? So you got to be careful as to uh, what you're sending back to the presenter if they're paying attention to them. Excellent. David's coming back to comment on. David, what do you think? Yeah, sorry. You just sparked this for me, Guy. Uh, I gave a presentation uh, uh, probably two years ago called The Essential Ease, and I came up with three E's. Eye contact, energy, and engagement. That Those are the three key pieces to making a presentation really pop. And then I, add, I ended up adding a fourth, which is end. Know when to end. Don't dray on for forever and ever. Um but that eye contact that you were just talking about, paying attention to your audience, I wonder if maybe you know the answer to this guy. Could the presenters see the, the people watching on Zoom? I think that they were seeing programs. So only if they cut, there was a bird dog camera that was the uh, audience or stage, depending on how they rotated the head. Uh, but I think for the most part, they were looking at themselves or looking at a wide shot of the stage, or I don't know if there was a super source going out. I didn't see program. I was in the audience. So it's hard to, hard to say what they were looking at. I did notice that they had a monster for the keynote. They had a monster teleprompter projection of the words on the back wall. So that was pretty interesting. I mean, it was huge. It was probably, you know, 13 feet teleprompter across the back wall. And the reason why I noticed it, because I noticed one of the projectors flub a line and then he looked up and I was like, oh, there's a prompter behind me. So it's pretty neat to see that. Alex, thoughts? And I think, I still think this is, this is the argument for the digital first uh, approach, which is the idea that they, that the, that they're in a studio there. I mean, uh, that they are talking to everyone and they're looking at everyone. And, and I just have had the opportunity to look at people on a big screens, looking at the audience. And it's extremely compelling when, when they can look into a, into a monitor and they're looking directly at the hundreds of people all at the same time. They're looking eye to eye at you when you're in an audience on a stage and you look at this part of the audience, you're not looking at that part of the audience. When you're looking at this part of the audience, you're not looking at that part of the audience. When you're looking into a, a into a monitor, into a camera, you're looking straight at all of them, you know, and I think that that is the thing that, that really makes that, that absolutely work. I think that, that one of the problems with the stage also is that, um, you know, you, when 
when presenters roam, that's what we call it, roaming, um, you can't get better than a cowboy, a cow, what we call it, you know, a cowboy um, framing, which is their, you know, their chaps up. <laughs> so uh, because, because they're moving and what we try to train speakers to do is when you're setting up a, when you're setting up a point, you can walk to a new spike. You know, we put spikes on the ground. You can walk to a new spike while you're setting up the point. But when you're about to make that point, you stand on that spike and you do not move, you know, and, and then that allows the cameras, if the cameras know what they're doing, they're going to move in and they're going to get you a head and shoulder of that shot, but they can't do that if you're moving. And I think that's a hard part for a lot of speakers across many, many keynotes is that people who aren't trained well will roam. We'd let this go on for a while. And I think it's a really good thing because this is really what office hours is all about. We're all exploring how to improve everybody's understanding of and hopefully participation in this new form of working together, building communities. Uh, and I'm just really excited to be all a part of this. It's time for the next question, though. Let's move on. Douglas Carmichael asked, why do you think IzzyCast was designed with the Zoom Video SDK and not connecting Isadora instances directly to each other? In my opinion, it would be the more cost-effective for small producers if you don't have to pay per minute. John Wallace is going to help us with this. John? Most people do not have the technical ability to extend networks between each other. And so you're looking for what infrastructure do they need to build or can they leverage someone else's existing infrastructure to extend the technology? Uh, for them, it just made sense to use the Zoom SDK as well as bring the video along so they can see what adjustments are being made without having to build that infrastructure. I don't believe that Isadora could do it cheaper than Zoom has already done it. Alex? Yeah, the cost of the setup for almost everybody would be higher. The cost of, of in time and, and process and stability and everything else would be higher than paying per minute uh, to Isadora to just manage I mean, Isadora slash Zoom because, you know, and I don't think, I don't know what the, is. I don't think that they published what the number, the cost is per minute, but I don't think it's very high. So, um, you know, I think that you will, uh, it's like the cost of a coffee for, for an event. So I don't think that we're talking about really big numbers here. You can't leave it on all day or every day. Well, maybe you can, um, but, but I think that, um, I don't think those numbers are particularly high. Um, but I do think that uh, it would be much more expensive and much less stable and much more dangerous to do something where you're trying to roll your own. Um, that's not a minor, minor issue. Next question. Sarah Doyle from Falls Church, Virginia. Sarah asked, you spoke about bringing speakers into a separate Zoom meeting before intaking speakers in an ongoing event. Would you utilize the same workflow for agency interpreters? The lobby of Zoomtopia seemed pretty flush with lost interpreters. Alex? Yeah, so we've done a lot with ASL, um, and what we don't even want them to be at. The, we're so used to using Zoom at this point, we don't even want them to be uh, in the building because it's just one more thing that we have to manage. And so, typically, we uh, we do absolutely bring them in. In the past, we brought them into Zoom rooms. Um, I think that we're getting to a point now where we would probably bring them in using Zoom ISO. But in the past, we put the each interpreter goes into their own room, and the interpreters hand things off. It's really really nice because. We have it like the interpreters are handing off every 20 minutes or so, you know, for, for a longer event. And we have them in, at home with gray screens behind them, well lit, you know, and we simply switch to the next, you know, we're, we're in comms with them. We're talking, we're in just in the return back to, back to them. And when we, we're going ready, we're going to come to you now, you know, and then they just start going and it just, and it's so much easier to deal with it over Zoom than it is in person. Um, and, and they're well lit They're you know, we, we have it set up, they're all tested, they don't have to swap chairs, they don't have to do any of those things. So, you know, I think that, I mean, that's how we've done, how we've done hundreds of events with ASL. And um, it's worked, uh, you know, worked really well. 
Next question. Douglas Carmichael asked, if Apple extended the private Animoji Memoji APIs to third-party developers, could you see practical uses case beyond personal communication? Alex? I still want to do uh, satire with it. I have to admit, I, 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 you know, I think that you could have a lot of fun making emojis look like, you know, I don't know, uh, folks in Washington or something like that and having a lot of fun with it and being able to record it all and, and put it all together. Um, I've, I've thought about that for quite some time. I, I, I thought I keep on thinking that it wouldn't get it. Now it's not going to be absurd anymore, but I'm pretty sure it will be forever now. So um, so I think you could have a lot of fun with uh, satire. You know, at, to my mind, animojis often add a light touch to things, and sometimes that's really useful. There are other things I'm sure it would be a very bad idea. I do not want my doctor's visit <laughs> yeah. for him or her in the case. But I think fun a fox. You could have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and please, no more foxes. And this is a public service announcement. Like, stop the fox. Like it just. Like it's just so. Every time I see it now, I'm just like, oh my gosh, that fox. They're going to anyway. change to a muskrat now and it's going to be. A, <laughs> I, don't, I, I think that now that we have the emojis, I think I, I have a very, I, I don't like any of the animals. Like I just think that every time I see someone puts an animal on, I'm like, give me a break. <laughs> so, so anyway. Uh, next question. Let's move on. Before the car fox uh, comes oh back, Gilberto Espici from Santa Cruz, Bolivia asks, is there a way to organize manually the panel view on Zoom OSC or save the way it's set up using Companion? Boy, we're here in the first hour and we don't have our extraordinarily yeah. expert guest panel. Uh, this might be, can yeah, we switch this? Let's, let's push that one back to voting. Let's cancel that and um, drop that one back to voting and... Let's uh, bring that one back up again for our question manager. Let's let's uh, bring that one back up again in the second hour. That makes sense. Uh, move on to the next one. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. I did a test setup yesterday with a new client that doesn't like having the teleprompter or confidence monitor setups. What other ways have you used to focus the presenter eyeballs? David Paskin. Uh, I'm thinking either a sticky note or um, some googly eyes on <laughs> googly the Googly eyes. <laughs> I think that could I've, work. I've never used googly eyes. Alex? Well, the question is, is whether they want, whether they don't like to look at the words in the confidence setup or whether they don't like to look at a, at a window. Because one thing that, you know, if they're good enough at doing what they're doing, they don't need all those notes or they don't need a lot of other things there. Um, you know, we, to, to David's point, we've had, we've taken the, the dual monitor from um, Blackmagic and put it right below a, tele, a teleprompter that we're using as an Interatron. And on one side of it might be a clock. And on the other side of it is oftentimes just a handful of notes. Like this is, and it doesn't have all of their words. It literally has the next two things they have to talk about. And you hit a button, it's a, it's a power, it's a keynote. You hit a button and it just keeps on changing. So they see what they're talking about currently and what the next thing is. And they just have, literally it's like two or three words. That's so really good speakers. They don't want to read the teleprompter. They just want to remember what the order is and what they were going to talk about. And they figured out how they want to talk about that. And then in the monitor, we want to put a person, you know, or a group of people that they can see um, so that they can connect with them and it allows them to be present. The Interatron process we, we find to be very successful. That sounds really interesting. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, next question in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. What do you have set up as a switch to make sure those that depend on you have continuity of knowledge if you suddenly should pass on? Ooh, that's a tough question. Alex, you have some thoughts about it? 
I mean, a lot of it has to do with with um, delegating. <laughs> like when you're doing something, working with other people, working with other folks to to make that work. I don't know if there's um, there is you know I, uh, I think that that's the the thing you have to figure out is how you're going to put those um, how you're going to c- connect a larger community to what you're doing so that if you're not there, I mean, I didn't. I haven't died or anything, but what makes this work is that when I get sick or I get into a production or whatever, there's a large community that can kind of come up under it and make the show keep going. And so it's just a matter of building that community around what you're doing. John Wallace. Yeah, success in planning and business continuity planning, those those are the two things that you should definitely understand. What you want to survive beyond yourself, what are the practices, programs that you can use, how will people gain access those are the things that you can define, whether it's with your family or with a business or, or an organization that you're running. Nigel. Any good organization, the leader will first plan a system that allows them to be replaced. If you build a system that relies on you, then the system will die with you. I also note that technology companies are starting to understand this in terms of our accounts and things. In the early days, I remember uh, I had an old account and it was under Apple and I couldn't change it or do anything with it. And I realized that if for some reason I were to be in a car accident or something, that no one would be able to sit there. And I actually saw that happen with people that I knew who were in my feed and um, they would keep popping up after they had passed away because it was just an automated process that they had set up and nobody could turn it off. I do know that Apple and probably other companies now are making it possible for uh, designees to be able to get access to some of your personal accounts so they're not quite so locked behind a brick wall. Um, It's just the evolution of tech. Mitchell, you have a thought? Yeah, if I should pass on, I know I'll live on in the Zoom ISO testing uh, center. (laughs) There you go. Let's move on to the next question, but an important topic. Oh, thank you. Uh, Morgan Price from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Any thoughts on if the Rode XDM100 dynamic USB mic will replace the Shure MV7 as the recommended dynamic mic for meetings? Alex. I don't know how to say this. Um, I probably would not send the mic out because of the form factor. Um, It just doesn't look right. (laughs) I think that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, But that's why it's the form factor. It's always been a problem with the road uh, because it it, it resembles other things. And I I don't think I'd want to use it as a mic. Ah, Yeah. So anyway, so we'll let it go. Let it go with that. Yeah, I was curious as to whether somebody can throw up a yeah. picture, but maybe that's a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> Douglas Carmichael is here. One use case for iPads in hospitals has been religious pastoral support with technologies like Canvas and Zoom ISO, OSC. Uh, I hear you knocking. Could you see applications for hows to not only support their congregate congregants, but multiply the effectiveness of the leadership? David. I'm not sure I'm fully understanding the question. Uh, Generally speaking, I like avoiding human contact. And so Zoom uh, works beautifully for me. I apologize for the kid noise in the background. Um, But when it comes to pastoral visits, uh, there's nothing like being in the room with another human being, being able to put your hand on their hand uh, and have that that personal connection. Uh, And uh, video will never replace that. Kind of support that thought entirely. Let's move on to the next question. Gilberto Espici in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Anyone know what is the right setting for getting the best quality recording on vMix? I'm not sure if we have any vMix. Oh, there we go. Guy Cochran's going to weigh in on Guy? 
Yeah, the internal codec, I don't think is a very good codec. And so you, you want to kick it out to something else. Uh, I use NDI, but you could also use a, a deck link or something like that and push it to something else. Uh, I'll use Mimo Live as a recorder through NDI because it does ProRes. So that's how I kick out of vMix and record is by using a Mac. But that's because my editing workflow is a ProRes workflow on the Mac. Uh, on the PC side, I mean, you're, you're kind of you're kind of stuck with vMix's uh, codec, which isn't a, a good one. Okay, fair enough. Hopefully that was helpful for you, Lord Beltro. Uh, let's go to the next question. Morgan Price, Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Any thoughts and experience with Descript's new storyboard release for video editing? I don't know if anybody here has. Oh, Alex will pop in. Alex? Uh, it looks like it's, it, I don't think a lot of us have because it's still in a, um, uh, I think it's just still in limited access. Maybe it just opened up. But it, it looks interesting. It's it's a it's the ability to start storyboarding, you know, um, things, putting images and so on and so forth into it with the script um, so that you can previs, you know, a lot of those pieces um, that are there. I, I think that we, uh, maybe some, we put it in the second hour suggestion somewhere, but I, I think that we should get Descript on because I think they're doing some pretty interesting things. Um, and so we should really get kind of a whole walkthrough of what they're working on because it's a, it's a really interesting set of tools. Sounds fascinating. All right. There's somebody will take a note in the back end, but for now, we'll go on to the next question. Douglas Carmichael is back with DaVinci Resolve, LumaFusion, and other content creation applications on the iPad Pro. Could you see it being a worthy competitor to a full MBP MBA for lower-end production use cases? John Wallace. I really think the lack of ability to really get data in and out, as well as the file system limited from being a full-blown editor workstation is great for doing things on the fly. It can definitely fill a gap within your workflow, but I don't see it replacing my MacBook Pro. And, and forgive me, but the acronyms here, MBP and MBA, I, I saw MBA and I thought Master of Business Administration. Uh, what is MacBook the, Air, I would assume. Oh, okay. MacBook Pro, MacBook Air. All right. Sorry. Just didn't translate that in my brain. I'm being slow today. Uh, so hopefully that was a good answer for your question, Douglas. Let's move to the next question. Sorry about that. David Brady from New York, New York, a colleague of mine had a slim under jacket backpack by Beta Brand. Since discontinued, what kind of everyday carry bag does the panel like that carries just enough without looking like a paratrooper? Alex, I think it depends. It depends. I, I happen to like looking like a paratrooper. No, <laughs> so, so anyway, so I, I have, uh, yeah, I have um, my standard issue is is the Rush 24 from five, Tactical 511. So I'm probably not the perfect person to answer this question. Um, you know, I found uh, the Gap made a really good satchel that was like a, uh, or, you know, as, as some people call a Merce. Um, anyway, so, but uh, it was like a little satchel that, um, uh, that, uh, was leather and you could, it just flapped over and I, I was going to try to pull it up and find it for you, but I can't, I can't actually, uh, um, I can't find it in front in my desk right now. Uh, the other thing to look for, if you want to go kind of partially in between, um, uh, and you want to have something that is probably a little bit, um, heavier but not necessarily like a big backpack is look for ammo bags um so tactical 511 again which is where i get most of my bags um has uh, these ammo bags that are a little bit like a satchel um they again you won't look like a paratrooper but um but when you go through security at <laughs> at uh at, in africa they might say uh do you know what that is <laughs> and you're like you know like do, do you know what that's used for and you're like 
Yeah, yeah, I know what it's used for. So know that it's an ammo bag. But if you look for ammo bag and Tactical 511 and no one else is raising their hand, I'm sitting there trying to stretch because we don't have any more questions for the first hour. Oh, do we have more now? Okay, so I'm sitting here just <laughs> bouncing along trying to fill the time. Uh, yeah, right. I was looking okay, over there we going... a couple more first hours. Go ahead. <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, and I just wanted to, you know, you find the right bag for you and it can last your entire career. I remember we had a, a videographer came in from out of town that we hired and he did a great job. So I bought him a, a kind of a carry bag 20 years later. Now I just got a ping from him and he's still using that bag. So you find the right thing and you understand how it works for you exactly where the pockets are exactly where you keep certain things. And it becomes a real plus in your working life. Uh, just having a, you know, the three, the Sharpie, the ballpoint pen and the pencil that I always need in one place in my bag has been a huge relaxation when I travel because I always know those three things are there and I don't miss them. Uh, we got another question. Let's let's ping into the next general question. And it's from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Any suggestions for a high-speed disposable camera to film an explosion? Looking for minimal budget, I can get away with for higher than 1,000 frames at 720 if possible. Alex and Mitch. Alex, go ahead. Yeah, so the um, it is... It's a little weird, um, so it depends on whether this resolution is going to work for you or not. The Sony Cybershot DSC-RX0 will shoot up to 960 frames a second. The weird thing about it is, is that it, Sony has this thing, they've had this for a while, um, where they, they kind of subsample the frame to make that actually work. So, um, so for instance, the, um, uh, you might be able to get, yeah, so it's 1136 by 384. I don't know how they come up with that number. It's a very long shot there, but 1136 by uh, 384. Uh, if you go down to 480 frames, it is 1676 by 566. So that is, these are, um, and there's a tiny little camera and uh, you might, it might actually survive uh, whatever you're doing. Um, but that, you know, once you get past those, those Sony sensors, I don't, I haven't seen very much at night at above 500 um, frames per second. All right. Uh, Mitchell. Cost effectively, yeah, a Phantom, by the way. A Phantom is disposable at about $100,000 a clip. Exactly. <laughs> Everything's disposable if you have enough, if you have enough uh, resources. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it's fabulous to be able to work at high speed. You get some beautiful things, but it is not an easy game to play. And I think we're pretty close to the top of the hour. And I noticed looking in the panel that our friends are here. We are very excited for what's going to happen next on our second hour. Most of you know that we have been quite uh, focused on Zoomtopia the Zoom uh, annual conference that's happening virtually or just finished, uh, I guess, yesterday. And we are incredibly fortunate to have old friends here who have been part of the Office Hours family for a long time and are now going to be joining us to explain from an insider's perspective what it was like to be there and what's happening with Zoom and what's going on. So we're going to welcome to the Office Hours process our dear friends Andy Carluccio, Jonathan Cocatello, and... Uh, Oh, Sam, I'm sorry. I, I, I Sam Kakaiko. Um, anyway, all that said, guys, what happened over the last two days for you? Andy, you want to start us off? Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. And good to be back with Office Hours today. Good to see everybody. And uh, I'm really excited to have a conversation to you about Zoomtopia, which is Zoom's annual user conference. Uh, it was here as a hybrid event uh, in San Jose and uh, as well as virtually through our Zoom events platform. I look forward to discussing to you today both uh, you know, how we 
produce Zoomtopia at a high level and answer some of your questions about that. And also, if you have certain questions about some of the things that we talked about at Zoomtopia, I'm happy to take a crack at some of those as well. So we're looking forward to today's conversation and happy to be here. Can you give us just a little overview of uh, for people who might be in the show today who don't understand what was going on? Uh, give us just a really broad overview of what Zoomtopia is supposed to accomplish for you. Yeah, so Zoomtopia, like we said, it's our annual user conference. Uh, it's this is now our sixth year doing it, uh, which has been a wild ride. Um, but it's it is really our our time throughout the year where we give the biggest sort of push towards here's what's been accomplished over the past year. Here's the new features you have to look forward to in the coming future, in the short term. We also typically launch several product features at the show, several big announcements at the show. And then we also have uh, a lot of in-depth technical training going on. This year, we had our hands-on labs and our expo. We had all of our different sponsors there showing different hardware options. We had some great partners that I think this panel is going to be really familiar with. We had Blackmagic and BirdDog, Sure, Sennheiser, all there, uh, showing off some of their latest ways that they tie in with Zoom Rooms and with Zoom for events and all those different things. Uh, and then training sessions across uh, just what options are available in the product, what use cases, emerging industries, which was one of the keynotes that Andy actually had a session on. Uh, and yeah, it's just kind of a, a celebration and a grouping together of what's possible with Zoom and how do we connect. Sam, is the pace of, of development at Zoom still maintaining this crazy pace? You guys have done so many new things over the course of the past year. Uh, is anything looking like it's slowing down? You just keep accelerating. Absolutely not. Speed is a, a word that I hear Eric telling us every day. Uh, the number I saw announced over at Zoomtopia was that in the past year, we announced 1,500 plus new features and enhancements. Thank you. Uh, cool. And uh, Jonathan, I haven't talked to you in a while. What's your perspective on what's been happening at the Zoomtopia process? Yeah, definitely. Um, this was, of course, the first Zoomtopia that uh, I've had a chance to be a part of here at Zoom. And um, it, it was wonderful. This is the first on-site Zoomtopia we've done in a few years. And the scale was more than we expected going into this, but um, but but turned out as we as we wanted. Um, it was a great experience. We uh, scaled up the complexity from a technical side, um, as as Sam has said many times. Our uh, the complexity within the breakout within the content theaters, the complexity of the setup that we're running for the Zoom side of things and for the AV side of things was way more complicated than the main stage setup in 2019. Last time we we're on site, um, so just the scale, the complexity doing a, a large-scale deployment of production tools, of resources, and then scaling that up for multiple different content sessions, not to mention the main stage with some innovations, which we'll definitely talk about. Um, so it's great to be a part of and uh, good to get the team together from the event services side, combined with Andy's team, and really find solutions that work for this year. I have to say the parts of it that I watched and I was able to watch two or three sessions were just technically they looked beautiful. Uh, the whole team just congrats to everybody for putting out some just first class content. Uh, I, I think everybody's here to figure out what our audience is interested in. So let's dive into the questions as quick as possible. Uh, okay. Go ahead, Mitch. OK, first one we have is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Any more details on Zoom Production Studio? Sure. And so I'm happy to take that one. Um, at Zoomtopia, we discussed a new feature for the Zoom events platform called Production Studio, um, which allows the host to uh, host the event to design an experience for attendees, including borders, uh, colors, um, aspect ratios, backsplashes, basically things that create uh, a unique layout inside of the Zoom client. Uh, the goal of this feature is to be able to uh, introduce the ability to do a branded, produced look in directly inside of the Zoom client. 
So the organizer is going to go into the Zoom events web portal and they're going to design scenes. They're going to say, all right, I want this scene set up this way. I want this person in this box, this person in this box. They're going to lay all that out. And then they're going to launch the Zoom client. And the Zoom client is going to detect that production studio is active. and It's going to give you a new interface that's basically a little mini switcher. So you're going to preview and program. You're going to have a scenes list. You're going to have sources. And you'll be able to throw together a, uh, a multi-shot composite, kind of like we would say like a super source, um, with those visual elements now added into the Zoom platform natively. Again, are, to, to set expectations, you know, are you going to be doing everything that you're doing here in office hours or things that you're doing with Zoom ISO and vMix? No. But we hope that it gets uh, the average person a lot further on creating branded, engaging conversations with native tools inside of our platform. And it makes them hungry to want more. So they come to you guys, and then you offer professional services that take them to the next level with our broadcast suite of tools. And it looks like John Preto on our panel has a question. Sean. Hey guys, great job. This is my third time watching Zoomtopia remotely. It gets better and better each year and I hats off to you guys. Uh, would things like the, the Fenwick Framer and, and Meters be in Production Studio as well? So I think that there's um, the, the goal of Production Studio is really to uh, handle the layout component of production design. Uh, there are additional things that we're doing. We talked about Zoom for Creators a little bit, where Zoom apps are getting involved and in, in how we do other components like graphics or overlays or things like that where there's opportunity for the platform to work together with different elements. Again, Zoom is really focused as being a platform company right now and combining multiple solutions together to create a value chain for the end customer. So production studios really focused on layouts and scene lists, but of course that's not everything that goes into a production. There's so much more to it. So I look forward and I'm excited about seeing what professional production companies will do with this tool in addition to independent producers to add that extra step to make sure that the panel is well-prepared to have a great conversation and then leveraging tools that we natively make available so that in order to get you know something that looks like a more designed branded experience, you don't have to pull out the Zoom ISO rig and vMix for every customer requirement. You can get, you know for the majority of them who just want a couple of you know customized layouts that will have tools natively available to you, which should reduce your cost and improve the customer's success. So I do just want to add to that. Sure, go that, ahead. Uh, just as an aside, that the Fenwick Framer is in my stage manager's uh, toolkit for my team internally. That was <laughs> there. The, you go. Okay, you heard it here idea. first, folks. Watch out, Chris is going to be in here looking for uh, some sort of royalty arrangements. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm just really excited. What I saw the last couple of days is so exciting, and I know people have all sorts of questions. Let's get to the next one real quick. Todd Perry in Prescott, uh, Arizona asked, is there any foreseeable benefit to recording locally using Zoom ISO to an ATEM with the double-ended recording capabilities coming to Zoom? Which, which one of you on the team wants to handle it? I can start from a product perspective, but I think these guys should definitely chime in on workflow. So the purpose of double-end recording is to make sure that you have high-quality individual stems from all of the endpoints. Now, a couple of things that the ATEM can do that double-end recording doesn't do is like give you a... Uh, you know, an XML definition of your cut right off of the ATEM, right? Which so you can you could use actually both together. You could take Zoom ISO in the ATEM, produce a show, get a cut, and then get the individual stems and do a footage replacement after with the high end from the double end recording feature and then throw that right onto a timeline. So I actually, I don't see them so much as being in competition. I, I agree with part of the sentiment, which is that the Zoom ISO workflow is probably more popular for live use case and certainly 
the, um, the ability to get it all in real time has its own value. But from a strict production perspective, if you're doing post-production, you're going to want the highest quality audio and video that you can get. And that's part of the reason that we've introduced the double-end recording feature, which we announced, and that's, that's coming soon uh, in the near future. So I think they can work together. They can build a workflow, but I look forward to hearing what these guys think as well. Yeah, Sam, Jonathan, who wants to pop in next? Yeah, I would just point out that, uh, you know, we, we just finished up our U.S. Zoomtopia or North America Zoomtopia event uh, today. But next week is actually our EMEA as an APAC event. Uh, as a fast follow. And so my EMEA team's already been working hard and they use this exact workflow. They were doing uh, Zoom ISO into a Decklink quad into an 8M SDI extreme uh, so that they could take all those eight 1080Ps, ISO all their participants, do a line cut in real time, and then take that XML into DaVinci and just tweak and clean up. But th that workflow is absolutely insane for speed of production and as well as quality of the edit. Jonathan, you want to finish up? Well, I'll add to that in cost too. You know, if you think about the cost to do that kind of multi-track recording and editing, like like Sam said, do that uh, with the live cut and then and in post-production, um, extremely affordable system. And Alex has something to toss in. Alex, yeah, could you tell us? A little, do you, are you able to share what um, what formats that it's recording when it records locally in both audio and video? We don't have that answer today, um, but we'll be sharing more about it in the near future. And same with sync, uh, how it keeps some, is, is it recording them all uh, basically synced in some way? Yeah, so we definitely, it's definitely an important consideration to make sure that the footage is actually usable relative to the other footage when it comes in. We have some capabilities already in, in our various recorders that, uh, that begin to uh, think about that idea. Um, so it's definitely a consideration for the product team about, you know, how do we make sure that this is actually usable in the end workflow? And of course, making sure that the way that the different videos line up with each other, that that's an important consideration. And Guy wanted to weigh in, Guy? Yeah, having the ATEM record instead of a bunch of decks, I mean, the cost savings, like Jonathan was saying, is pretty significant. The other part is having that that file that's a DaVinci Resolve file, you pop it open and everything's in sync and you can just grab those clips and move them around, uh, trim off, who, or maybe you miscut and you can go and replace and uh, fix that cut. But it, it's also just uh, how does the sync look on a double end if you put that back together? Is the time code going to lock it back in or is it by audio that you're going to have to look at waveforms uh whereas with the uh, atem it's doing it for you so it's pretty much done and then the codex you're going to a 75 megabit environment so if you're i'm not sure what your codec will end up being but 75 megabits pretty decent but it's all it's doing is it's up resing from what about five or six megabit 1080 feed up to 70 so you're not you're not gaining any quality there, obviously, but it is something to consider when when you're editing, because um, you could just go straight to a, like a bunch of decks in ProRes, and then you can have high quality motion graphics. It just depends on your workflow and how fast you want to turn it around and what what uh, animations or motion graphics you're going to add. Jonathan, yeah, I'm nodding during that. Oh, I'm sorry, Alec, yeah, Andy. I'm good. I was just going to say overall, I think the idea is that we're giving you more workflow opportunities to figure out how you want to plug different pieces together. And I'll be excited to see what people end up doing with it when they know that, oh, the only, there, there are more options to me available to get this footage than just having it through the Zoom transport layer directly to my ATEM or something like that. So I, I think there's a lot of workflows that will arise from this feature. So it's one that we're really excited about. Alex, you had a thought? All I was going to say is I've done inter double-ended interviews where we were getting one frame a second um, for over Zoom uh, because of the the far end uh, connection. And when we were done, it looked beautiful. <laughs> so it looked like broadcast. So double-end is incredibly powerful, when, especially when you're dealing with far-flung uh, pr presenters. 
So uh, there's a lot of magic going on in the background to make all this stuff work. <laughs> so uh, as a user, I can tell you, I'm always just, if I'm in Zoom, I'm happy. If a client says I have to be in anything else, I'm not happy. And I know these guys and the whole team are working really hard to make that possible. Let's move on to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Has Zoom considered certifications for media service providers? And who on the team wants to take that on? Uh, I saw the little nod over to me, but I, I don't think there's anything in heavily consideration that I'm aware of right now. Uh, but we are always, if you look at Zoom and the open architecture, we're always very big on enabling service partners to be able to deliver our services because at the end of the day, we're a SaaS company. And so people using our products and doing a good job with them is really the end result. So everything we can do to support that. Yeah, and there's no lack of opportunity for education about the products, um, both from the event services team offering you know, their consulting services, but also the way that we engage the community about production features, you know, the Friday after hour sessions, the test kitchens, all of that. You know, uh, we do try to be very transparent about offering our guidance on how to use Zoom for professional production. And didn't I see in the in the opening keynote that there was a new kind of customer service initiative that now uh, people can get into formally to get questions taken care of? Is that something that they rolled out as well? We did talk a little bit about professional services across Zoom as an organization. I think for production purposes, these guys uh, on the event services side are who you want to talk to. And that's that's been the model for Zoom event services is to provide you know, education to the customer about the products and, and hands-on support and training about how to use Zoom professionally for uh, these types of workflows. So you're, yeah, that makes a good sense. So everybody who's watching this show, you, you, most of us are in some kind of professional production circumstance. It's probably a good time to firm up those relationships and, and get to understand how to get to the team to get your questions answered when you need to. Uh, I'm sure there are appropriate pathways to do that. Let's move on to the next question. Next question from Jonas Dattel in Stuttgart, Germany. Sorry for the noise. I have a Teams user upstairs. Um, is Zoom considering releasing the internal tools built for the chat and reactions shown at Zoomtopia? I didn't know that was the sound of someone hitting their head against the wall. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't, couldn't resist. Uh, any one of you want to handle this? Yeah, I can take the first stab at that, and then I'll probably Thanks, talk yeah. to Jonathan after. But um it, something I've been saying more and more is how much we're kind of seeing specifically my production side of event services as almost an R&D team. We're going out there, we're building these maybe overly complicated sometimes, but really powerful and flexible tools to do exactly what we want to do, kind of like we've all done in our, in our backgrounds here, coming from theater and from live production and, and the things where you just have to get it done and make it, make it do what the client wants. Um, but then we're taking that, experimenting with it, finding what works, and then having a tight integration to the product team to say, hey, this is a great feature, this adds to the event, and then turn that into product features. So I definitely think that that's something you should continue to look forward to across all the things that you see us do that are successful. Um, the other piece is in the shorter term, event services is definitely looking at this. And you guys know from, I mean, our, our talks last, last year, right at the same time, that I'm never a big proponent of building proprietary things that, oh, you have to go to event services for. If you know what you're doing, if you have the the uh, the skill set and the resources, we're very big on empowering you to be able to, to do all of these fancy things. And so that's the same way. We're actually going to be doing a series of webinars in early December that uh, Jonathan and I will be leading where we dig into these tools in depth. And we're going to be explaining exactly what we did. Now, even with the knowledge of what we did 
to build those integrations because we're using Zoom OSC to pull the data out and to manipulate it and to render it up into those chat overlays and, and stuff like that. But even with that, there's a lot of legwork that goes into it. And if you want to skip that legwork, Event Services is going to be doing it as a services model where you can uh, give us our, your meeting IDs, we show up, we give you a web link to pull that chat overlay down, and it's that easy. Uh, for you on site, there's no on site needs, no on site computers, but it's also definitely something you could homebrew into your own solution that's a little more tailored for your event, a little custom, and that could be done with services or on your own. Again, we're all about empowerment. So, Jonathan, anything to add to that? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, empowerment is key and, and something we, we uh, really want to continue to do. Um, but like Sam said, this, this Zoomtopia was a, a a prototype in some ways, right? Even internally, we we threw these tools together to try to see what works, what doesn't work, what needs to be improved upon. Um, how can we package these better? How can we make things easier for our team? It definitely was a, a huge ask to be um, having our production specialist learn these tools that we, we've made in, in just a, a short amount of time, specifically for Zoomtopia, have to deploy and manage multiple systems at a time. Um, they stepped up, they did a great job. I definitely want to give them credit for that. Um, and we're looking at what more we can do with these tools. Um, I, can, I can speak a bit more about chat and reactions. I don't want to get too much into this, but just to get ahead of a few questions on this, um, I just want to clarify that the chat and reactions uh, used Zoom OSC to pull the data from, uh, from the meetings, both from the companion webinar, which we'll talk about, as well as from the virtual sessions themselves. Um, it aggregated that data, question data, chat data, and then used a JavaScript server to be able to push that to an HTML page for rendering. Um, so it was a very fascinating process and workflow that we, we really came to appreciate um, and was able to, to uh, simplify a lot of the process for us as opposed to using a different method of getting that chat on screen. And then just to underscore, you know, in terms of, you know, how can I get my hands on the capabilities, you can do it today through Zoom OSC, right? If you are willing to build the front end for your client, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, this is a, a totally separate base than the things that we've been talking to you guys about for two years, right? It's use Zoom OSC, get the data, make interactions from the data, automations, graphics, all of that. These tools are built on top of Zoom OSC and Zoom ISO. So in learning those tools, you're actually learning the core ingredients that you need to be able to build this type of work. And really with the chat and Q&A interfaces, that's just, that's like Jonathan said, it's, it's a JavaScript layer sitting on top of the Zoom OSC data pool. But Zoom OSC and Zoom ISO are available to all of you today. Um, so it's possible to build these types of workflows already. They were using the same frameworks that you know we have available to you guys. So look forward to continued updates to those products um, that continue to offer the capabilities that we offer the event services team to be able to build these these tools. The Excellent. last, like, shortest bit I want to add to that is that just kind of taking a step back to mention that the things you saw at Zoomtopia were real, were live. If you saw chat there, if you saw reactions there, that was coming from the meeting. We didn't fake any of it. Cool. Um, Mitch has some background noise things. So Alex, next question. Next question is from Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. And Mitchell asks, uh, what kind of Zoom related services could anyone provide uh, as a media expert? Who on the team wants to take a shot at that? Uh, I see them looking my way. So <laughs> I, this is asking like, as a media expert, how can I, how can I, I, I? Yeah, I think it's like, what could we, you know, what are, what are the opportunities for media experts to provide services, Zoom related services? So if we want to build a business around doing Zoom related services for vendors, I, I, I think that that's the, that's the goal there. Right. So, yeah, I, I think as you see hybrid events come more and more into the picture and everyone, I haven't heard really any opposition to it. It's such a, a no brainer that, really everyone is kind of stepping forward to it. Even the ones that don't want to are end up ending up pivoting there because they have to at the end of the day, because that's where we need to go. And with that, I think the general public is seeing the need to take these experiences and make them better, to make them more engaging, to make them more interactive. And 
that can be complicated to do really well. And so people out there who are watching sessions like this, participating in the office hours, digging in and seeing what's being done and how can I redo that and reverse engineer it and, and use those same techniques are incredibly invaluable to the corporate world, the house of worship world and everything in between, anything that needs to see and interact with the community remotely. Um, Zoom is already at the heart of it and how to do it best. It, uh, there's a lot of opportunities for both consulting for direct support and all the things that you see us doing here. Yeah, one of the things that Wei mentioned in her section of the product keynote was that Zoom is working on solutions from the home studio to the major newsroom and everything in between, right? And I think there's a huge opportunity right now for uh, different producers, production companies, individuals even, uh, to be able to look at the production tools, look at Zoom's guidance and modernize their production workflow, both for in-person events, hybrid events, and uh, completely digital events. Um, so I think there's a huge opportunity there to learn the tools, to learn the workflows, and then to begin to provide uh, features and workflows and opportunities to clients that nobody else in the industry right now is providing. The next year is a huge opportunity for those who are listening to the guidance, learning the tools to be able to enable their partners to have events that nobody else in the world can provide right now. So it's a huge opportunity to make some lane changes and get in front. If you're learning these tools and you're offering things to your customers with in accordance with Zoom's guidance on pro production that nobody else can offer right now, right? If, if, they're, if you're bidding against somebody who's still using a pinning permit pinning farm and a screen scrape, and you've got all these modern workflows on top of it, you got chat graphics, you got high quality video, individual audio mixes, you're light years ahead. And so that's something that, you know, I definitely want to drive home the importance of learning these tools. That's got to be tremendously empowering for the people who we know, know who come to this show that have been doing this for now two years to realize that the big networks are now kind of flooding into this space. And some of you out there are ahead of the game, which is excellent. That's, that's always how you make positive changes in your life is to be ahead of the curve when a big shift comes along. Uh, let's see, John Wallace had a question. John? Uh, I really think that the media expert now has to be, almost become the VAR. It's like Zoom, as they step up your services, now it's like, what are you adding to it? What are you differentiating yourself from? It's no longer just, I provide this in a meeting. It's how well do you produce it? How well do you invest into it? And how well are you using technology to really separate yourselves from someone just using natural Zoom services? Sure. If a client comes to you and you look as good or better than the larger competitors you have in a marketplace, you certainly have a leg up because they're going to see the result. It's going to be in front of them in the screen. And that's pretty powerful. Uh, Mitch, you had a thought. Yeah, it started with uh, me participating in client uh, Zoom meetings. And they always ask, how come you look so good and sound so good? I know it's not my looks, but, you know, look good on Zoom. And um, it's going a step further now. They want to do different ways. And I, as John just said, um, I, I kind of am becoming a, a VAR in a sense where I've got to decide, well, I'm giving all these consulting services. Uh, how do I do this with the blessings of Zoom to claim that I'm a Zoom expert? Okay, time to get on to the next question. Thank you, Mitch. And uh, what's up next? Next question is uh, from Lucas Herzog in Mans, and he says, I recently tried to use Zoom ISO V2 with an Ultra Studio HD Mini. Even though I set the output resolution to 1080p 50, it would only output i50. Uh, with other apps, p50 works fine. Is that just me? And who on the team? Alan, Andy? Yeah, I can take a crack at this one. So uh, the first thing I would say is make sure you're running the latest firmware on the Ultra Studio. Uh, there's a variety of things in terms of the way that it interacts with desktop video. 
um, and different frame rates that we take advantage of in ISO. So make sure you're on the latest ISO, latest firmware for the Ultra Studio. Um, so check that first. And then what I would say is if you're still having issues, this is the kind of thing to send an email to info at liminalet.com for. We have a support team there who actually uses the product in the field and understands you know, the interaction of Zoom ISO and actual production workflows. So you can feel free to open a ticket there and the team will be able to jump in and help you debug further. But yeah, the first thing I would do is just make sure you're on the latest firmware, latest ISO version, and, and try it again and make sure that's all set up, configured in the desktop video the way you want it to be. Um, and then we can look further from there. Okay, if nobody on the team wants to weigh in, let's move to the next question. Next question is from Guelberto Espeshi in, in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. And uh, he asks, uh, is there a way to organize manually the panel view on Zoom OSC or save the way it is set up uh, using Companion? Well, there's a couple of things there to think about on the product side. Um, so I'll answer the question about Zoom OSC, but then I want to tell you about a Zoom native feature that might be helpful to you as well. So for Zoom OSC, yes, I mean, we have a protocol that allows you to send batch actions to the product and say, oh, I want to pin these people, you know, right away. And you can do up to nine of them at once and you can create your custom views that way. So we see people break that out to a stream deck and have different groups of panelists that they want to see on time and organize all of that. And then they can recall it with just button presses on a stream deck in Companion, for example. But the other thing I want you to know is that you can actually organize and save the arrangement of a gallery view inside of Zoom natively. So you can drag and make an order from it, and then you can actually save that out. Uh, this was something that was really introduced for classrooms, but can totally be used for other use cases to say, all right, I want this gallery arrangement, and I want to save that. And next time these people come back together, our gallery order will match what we had dragged and dropped and set up originally inside of the client. So I wanted to make you aware that that feature is also available. Excellent. And if nobody else is going to weigh in on that, let's move to the next question. Next question is from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. And Bo asks, can you give us a quick rundown of the control room hardware used to produce the live stream? I love physical stuff. Any who 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 is in the room and knows the back setup? Uh, so this one, I'm actually going to toss to Jonathan if you want to cover kind of what we had both, uh, I guess, from our from our Zoom table specifically. Yeah, so so uh, I can speak a bit about what we had on the main stage versus what we had on the content theaters. Um, so for those who who uh, weren't aware exactly how this was set up, so we had the main stage, which did the keynotes, the opening and closing sessions each day, and then we had content theaters. Uh, I think Sam, we had how many content? We had five, five primary, and five then three primary. others. Correct. So we had we had these eight additional theaters, uh, which we um, made it a point to have an almost identical setup, at least from the Zoom side the systems we provided uh, at the, uh, to the main stage. Um, so in terms of some of the hardware we used, um, we drove our systems using M2 MacBook Airs. We had a whole table full of them. And this was running Zoom ISO, both primary and backup systems to pull remote presenters and to pull in uh, audience questions. Um, we have that running through a few production tools that allow it, us to orient them in, in a 9 by 16 orientation. So we can put that onto a, uh, a screen on stage for some of our theaters. Um, we did that using Isadora. We'll, we'll talk more about that later. Um, uh, let's see, we used a lot of uh, uh, decklink cards in Sonnet enclosures. I think we had a total of 30 decklink cards we deployed across Zootopia. Um, what else? We used um, uh, a lot of Blackmagic gear, uh, just in general, um, both for capture cards, Ultra Studio recorders, for our, our final output to the Zoom webinar, both primary and backup systems. Um, we used OBS on occasion here and there. Uh, OBS is very useful to take in a web page and render that out and send that to NDI or SDI. Um, we use that for the social media scroll feed that you might have seen in some of the theaters. Um, on the main stage, uh, hardware setup was simpler in some ways, um, but we did use NDI as a way to get from our systems for the gallery feeds out to Canvas's system. Um, anything I'm missing, Sam? Any 
major piece of hardware? No, I think that's about it. Other than just to say that that last one was like burying the lead, but uh, we, we, our gallery views were all coming out NDI. So we had uh, 48 people that we were, would pin at a time out NDI uh, off of a handful of machines there. And then we were fitting into Canvas from immersive design studios that we were using to, to generate a lot of the content on the main screen. So the uh, primary production company was sending all of the actual like transparent sort of scripted content from the show that you saw up in that middle screen. They would send that as an NDI feed in. We would send our NDI feeds of the gallery participants. They would take them and render them into those little bubble circles and give the animation of them kind of pulsing on and off. Um, the chat scroll was actually something that that was Jonathan's native tool uh, that he built, uh, sent as an NDI feed to them to just put on the screen there. Uh, and then the reactions were data that Jonathan was sending the rate uh, just via OSC. And then Canvas was taking that and doing the particle generation on those. One other thing I want to highlight about the main stage in particular is that, you know, if you've looked at behind the scenes of previous Canvas style integrations, it's been, you know, rows and rows of IMAX with people running around like crazy trying to pin people and search for people and find people. This was one guy sitting in front of an Isadora interface with Zoom ISO just sending everything over to Canvas. So it was a really, really cool way of consolidating all that infrastructure and then being able to have like bi-directional communication with Canvas like, oh, hey, somebody, you know, turned off video or left the meeting. Let's freeze them shrink their bubble out and bring in a new person, right? So right. we had all these automation workflows that were operated really just by one person on the Zoom side for the contribution yeah. to the Canvas system. I, I definitely am excited to talk more about that and, and to answer any questions. I mean, for Canvas, it was a great collaboration where um, we did what we did best, which is taking data out from Zoom and processing it and, and handling that side of things. And they did what they did best, which is dynamic content and, and interactivity and getting that out uh, as, a, as a layer that was provided to the, to the video wall. So um, great collaboration in that aspect. Nice. Next question. Next question is from Jesse Mills in San Francisco Bay Area. And Jesse asks, is Zoom hiring professional production contractors to support larger internal or external events? Or is it doing it all with resources of the events service team? So especially when you look at Zoomtopia and the absolute massive scale, uh, I have a decently okay sized team, I feel like, of great people, but uh, not that. Like, uh, like it definitely takes an army to, to pull off what we did. Uh, I've been saying that the show was about four times the size that it was last time we did an in-person version of it. Um, and so we absolutely have production partners that we're using in that. Obviously, we're not the ones bringing in line arrays and putting subs into the stage and doing decking and bringing the movers and, and all of those things. What we did own on this was we, we very largely owned the design and development of how Zoom was going to integrate to those pieces, then working with the external production teams uh, for the, the deeper video engineering and the sort of more standard event pieces that they are excellent at. Excellent. Next question. Next question is from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. And Jonas asks, how is Zoom Production Studio licensed? Is it licensed at the Zoom event level or is it a license at, at a technician production company uh, bring the, the production company brings in? Um, we haven't spoken about licensing models uh, for Production Studio at this point. Um, I will say we typically, um, you, you typically have it in the different tiers of Zoom, right? And that's where the products come in versus like a, um, like for Zoom events, right? Like, and, and Sam might know a little bit more about this as well, but like some production companies are owning the events licenses, some uh, corporate clients are owning the events licenses, and then the production companies coming in and getting access to those accounts. So there's a couple of different ways that we've seen people interact with it. And Zoom events did announce uh, more 
uh, flexible licensing options coming in the future. If you saw Kat's session about Zoom events, she talked about you know more uh, flexible ways of managing licensing for Zoom events. So I would expect you know a handful of things to come you know in the future around how that's handled and and how we make sure that that's a seamless interaction that scales for a variety of different sizes of events um, that you might have uh, over the course of a, a different production year. Fair enough. Next question. Next question is from JJ McKenna in San Venetia, California. And JJ asks, uh, any idea when we might get the original uh, sound on a particular source restored or should producers just switch to Zoom ISO? I was going to say, I I was actually talking to the audio engineers about this the other day because um, I think this one may have slipped from our use case getting to them. So so we put that back on their radar. But uh, one workaround that they did give me is every time Zoom releases the native client, if that's what you're working in for this, there's also uh, an IT installer available on the website, uh, which allows a little bit more management for enterprises typically. But for you, there's a way to uh, force it there to always use original sound. Now, it's not tied to a specific device, but if you have like a dedicated, this is my production system, I need original sound on the system all the time. Using that IT installer can do that for you. So you're not having to make sure that the tech remember to click the button every time they start a session. Fair enough. Next question. Next question is from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. And Bo asks, is there a future where I can elegantly send four SDI feeds with uh, eight channels plus of audio into Zoom and then get them back out as 1080p SDI on the other side? Uh, This would revolutionize a lot of broadcast transport workflows I deal with. Yeah, it sure would. Stay tuned. (laughs) <laughs> very good Ooh, there's very happiness good, coming good. in the future yeah. next question next question is from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Maryland USA uh, and Tlaloc asks how will Comenda present to users uh, as a separate app or attached to the main client I well I, I kind of want to bounce that back to you Alex but yeah. I'll say on the Zoom side that through Zoom apps we have the ability for partners to deploy their web apps directly inside of the Zoom client, either on the sidebar or like you saw with SPX, actually doing graphics inside of the main canvas or built into the webcam feed. So variety of things there. But Alex, did you have some thoughts on that? And as a presenter, you, you should be able to see it as early as next week. I think we're going to start testing it across all the panelists um, next week. The um, it is uh, it looks just like chat, so it just comes down as, a, as it's attached to the main window, or you can spin it out into its separate window. And right now, we're we're really focused on the panelists because we think that the, that's the the people that will use it first the most. Um, but uh, but it, it's the center column of that panel view, but it's attached to the main client right now. That sounds exciting. Uh, next question. Next question is from Aaron, uh, Jen Corelli in Flagstaff, Arizona. And Aaron asks, how, how does one get a Zach token for Zoom ISO? Yeah, so there are a variety of ways that you can do this. Um, if you actually, I'll, I'll start by saying that if you use OAuth to log into Zoom ISO, you're actually using a Zach token under the hood and we're just automatically doing it for you. So when you log in, we're actually obtaining that Zach token, but everything is built on top of Zach to begin. You just might not see that. But uh, the main way that people interact with Zach tokens is through the Zoom APIs. So Zoom APIs give you the ability to get to get a persistent token. And, and for the benefit of the listener, a Zach token is basically a identifier, unique identifier and privilege access to be able to say to an SDK application, yes, you may start or join meetings on my behalf. And the developer actually has the ability to request what scopes are available for that token. So when you first launch Zoom ISO and you log into it, you actually see, hey, Zoom ISO wants to be able to start and join meetings on your behalf. And it's asking for the Zach read property. If you actually look at what the um, the consent that you're giving is, it's saying, oh, we wanna be able to generate Zach tokens for you 
with uh, read and meeting start privileges. So um, that's what that is under the hood. So either if you're accessing participant data um, through your uh, OAuth type API application, or whether you're doing something else like uh, creating custom create virtual API users and then generating tokens for them to then possess SDK apps with like uh, OSC and ISO. Um, there's a variety of workflows, but yeah, the, the Zach token is kind of a cornerstone identifier of the Zoom developer platform. And uh, the fastest way to get started with it is to go start with OAuth type app and marketplace and build something on the API connection. There you go. Next question. Next question is from Greg Gibson in Washington, uh, D.C. And Greg asks, having lost a couple of clients to StreamYard, I am less enthusiastic about tools trending towards making me obsolete. I would like more tools bridging the gap between virtual and in-person. The on-screen chat flow was a good start. More to come? So I think what I would say there is that exactly, like you see already how uh, Andy described it the other night as... Uh, we have the two experiences, the one that's kind of like a little self-serve and the one that takes professionals. And what we need to do is make sure that they never catch up to each other. Instead, the production one has to always be leading and pulling the other one around. And so when we look at uh, what, what our team is working on, both from a features perspective, from Andy's team on building these opportunities to then build these use cases from the services yes. on trying to build out, okay, what is the use case that uses his tools? Uh, we're always focused on continuing to everyone wants to continue to improve everything. So we're taking the biggest and the brightest and the ones that can spend the resources and, and through partners like you guys, making those as great as they possibly can be. And then the other stuff that used to just be a simple webinar with a gallery view is able to now also improve that experience. Yeah, here's, here's the way I look at it, Greg. So um, the entire year, you know, at least for our team, has been focused on shipping features that help pro producers. So you saw the Zoom OSC update and the Zoom Room update in June. You saw Zoom ISO version two earlier in September. Um, these were really designed to help move forward professional production to be able to incorporate uh, dynamic graphics and overlays and high quality video and audio with mixing and, and really design a professional experience that you know takes an experienced operator, uh, either a single individual or a production company like you saw for Zootopia. Um, the main difference, the tool set's the same. It's just the scale of investment into learning that technology and deploying that. Um, that that's the difference there. The other thing I would say is that, you know, I would look at production studio, for example, as an asset in your tool belt as an event producer. If you have a client that comes to you and all they need is you know, uh, a certain arrangement of boxes and they wanna be able to you know, do that natively in webinar, well, Production Studio is the only tool that allows the panelists and the attendees to be in the same webinar without having to do transport. So right now you have all this infrastructure to move chat from one meeting to another meeting, collect the questions into a spreadsheet and make graphics and all that stuff because your talent and your attendees are in different meetings, but you could use Production Studio and understand how to jockey that as a service to your client, which would reduce your cost and deployment as a producer. So I think that you should look at it as a tool to help yourself. But I would also say that, you know, we've we spent the entire year shipping features that are designed to help you in the pro production bracket to differentiate yourself um, from production studio. Let's be clear, you know, instead of expectations, production studio is not going to deliver the level of complexity that Zoom ISO and vMix or the ATEM with all these graphics overlays are going to do, right? It's not, it's not there. It's designed to be simple and easy to use. But again, depending on what the customer requirements are, it's a tool in the tool belt to help you differentiate yourself from your competitors. 
Again, in the pro production bracket, you're going to need to do that with Zoom ISO and other professional services and, and continue to innovate and push forward to build something that looks different from production studio. But if the customer requirement is something that can be served by production studio, we've dramatically reduced complexity for you. That'll improve your cost. That'll improve your ability to do speed of delivery. That'll simplify the complexity on your side. So I'd look at it really as an asset versus as something that's competing with your business model. And Alex, had a thought on that? Pencils are really inexpensive, but we still hire writers and artists. There you go. Next question. Next question is from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. Does do Zoom Double End Records also manage the upload? Yes, we did. I uh, we that is part of the experience. So just to be clear about you know how I view what a double end recording is, sort of by its definition, uh, all of the participants are recording themselves and then asynchronously uploading their uh, their video to some sort of cloud repository where then you can go pull them down. Um, so that is part of the intended workflow is that everybody local records and then we manage automatically getting into our cloud and then you can access it there. Fair enough. Next question. Next question is from John Preto in Las Vegas, uh, Las Vegas, US. <laughs> I heard two timetables for deliverables by the end of the year or early next year. Thoughts? Yeah, Who's I mean, <laughs> yeah, so, so, like so that, many yeah. thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so um, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. There's, uh, for example, like Zoom Rooms releases on a quarterly cadence. So the next Zoom Rooms release is, you know, going to be somewhere in the December, January timeframe, right? So um, that's one opportunity for new features um, to look at, you know, what's in that change log. But for the for most of the Zoomtopia announcements, we're trying to give you uh, three mental pictures. What we did this past year what we're doing right now and what to expect for the next year to give you guidance about our roadmap and where we're going. So I think when you hear some of that verbiage, it's really designed to give you a picture of where we're going and what's going to be available soon, further out, what's our, what's our thinking behind all of that? How does what we've been doing this past year inform what we're doing and what are we doing today to deliver value to customers? So I think that's why you see a lot of that verbiage is that, you know, um, a lot of the people who are attending Zoomtopia or coming to these sessions are trying to understand Zoom at a philosophical level to be able to then provide guidance back to their teams about where Zoom's trending and where Zoom's going. Um, so I, I definitely uh, am equally excited to hear that feature X is going to ship on date Y for sure. So keep an eye out for the for the change logs about that information uh, in the near future. That seems like a good answer. And next question. Next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vienna, Florida. And Andy asks, yesterday, Sam from Zoom Events managed uh, mentioned using a social media comment curation tool called Pinup. Does anyone have a link to Pinup? Sam? Yeah, so uh, Andy, sounds like you were in my session. Thanks for coming. Uh, but it's actually TintUp, T-I-N-T. Uh, and it should be TintUp.com. That was the, the partner that we used uh, for our social media scrolls. And I, I think I actually said this yesterday in the session, but fun fact, we were actually the first company to get to use LinkedIn posts as part of a scroll yesterday at the show. Nice, nice. Yeah, spelling matters. So not it's T I N T up, not P I N up. Correct. T I N T okay. up. Tint. All right. Next question. Next question is from Ryan Poirier in Orlando, Florida. And Ryan asks uh, For hybrid locations, how does the AV team transition from virtual session to virtual session? Is it a matter of joining and leaving multiple Zoom webinars and meetings at the signal feed device? Yes, exactly. So at the end of the day, there's a Zoom computer sitting there. We're using the Ultra Studio as our capture card on, and it is 
just like you are today in a Zoom session. It joins, it leaves, it's hopping between the different sessions throughout the Zoom events lobby, which makes it very quick to get between them and very organized, but it is moving between them. So typically like for Zoomtopia, we had enough time between sessions that it was able to just leave at the end of the session, join the other one and start its pre-show video again. Uh, but there's also opportunities sometimes where you end up needing two systems to leapfrog because I need my pre-show to already be going for the next session before my first session is able to get in. Right. And I can add to that as well. So, so for these sessions, we had maybe a half dozen or, or more uh, instances of Zoom OSC or various Zoom clients that need to join different sessions uh, for each one of these sessions. And uh, we made heavy use of alt host accounts. Um, so we had a large number of accounts that we created specifically for Zoomtopia, gave them alt host uh, capabilities for different sessions. That way, when we join and the session hasn't opened yet, we're still able to immediately become a co-host, not have to worry about uh, promoting from an attendee or any other process for that. Um, so having a massive spreadsheet full of different accounts, knowing which ones are on which devices, uh, that helped us a lot as well. And I'd say that, again, this is part of the value of having consolidated infrastructure, because even with, you know, a couple instances of Zoom OSC and Zoom ISO to deal with, it's a lot better than like 58, you know, uh, pinning computers, right, that you have to go to each one of them and log in. And they're all remote controllable through OSC. So you could sit there in something like a centralized Azure interface with an itinerary and go, next meeting, next meeting, next meeting, and then they just join, join, join to get in between the different services. And, it's not somebody with right. drop-down menus and, and all that stuff. And we did that. We did that. We had we had an Isidore interface for um, uh, for specifically one of our systems, which had multiple ZMOSC bots that needed to join for the chat bots and chat bridges. And so for that specifically, we used Isidore to quickly send the join tokens so we wouldn't have to, like Andy said, switch between applications and, and go through that long process. We also uh, found efficiencies where we could. So things like when I'm bringing my remote speakers, that is in a separate transport meeting. Uh, we use a single transport meeting for all of Zoomtopia with breakouts for each session, or sorry, for each, uh, each stage, but not for each session. So we would have that stage. My transport machines don't need to move between sessions now. Our companion webinars for our people who are joining in the room, that actually stayed tied to the stage as well. So that was just one webinar running all day. So we only had one, one set of systems that was really having to hop a whole lot between sessions throughout the day. The other pieces, we practiced it. Our team spent about a week beforehand just doing drills all day where they had all the systems set up on the on the counter and they were literally just practicing hopping between one session to the next to the next to make sure that we were able to do everything in the right order and functionally making sure that we were ready to go for the show itself. Yeah, look great. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Hershid Trevetti in Daytona Beach, Florida. And Hershid asks, to focus on Zoom OSC, how would one explain the core benefits to a nonprofit that might gain a better workflow for running meetings scheduled or such? Yeah, one of the things I'll say about that is I, I kind of view Zoom OSC as having two target demographics. There's the producer, and the producer, I don't actually think needs to interact with the OSC API at all. They're downloading presets, they're using companion, they're trying to control Zoom with external devices and have a more customized, integrated experience of using the meeting client that isn't primarily driven by keyboard and mouse. So breaking it out to peripherals and being able to engage with actual workflows, um, Zoom OSC is a window into the Zoom platform to both send in remote control information, but also provide back data like, hey, let's put a username on a button, right? And make that really easy for somebody to operate. I also see Zoom OSC used for sort of a, a developer style use case where you're experimenting and trying to build some sort of customized behavior or service that you're trying to build. And then you look at our API, you look at Isadora, you look at universe control and you build something custom that allows you to do something that you can't do 
uh, inside of Zoom in an efficient way. So you're building these automations and these, these series of events, and it's a developer mindset. Maybe not a developer platform, but a developer mindset coming into production. And I think that's what Sam and Jonathan have really exhibited really well at Zoomtopia is how to do Zoom OSC for that side of production, being able to build automated experiences that you know just allow participants to be able to engage with each other in a more flexible way without a ton of manual override and intervention to drive the experience. So I would look at it for those two types of demographics. Next question. Next question is from Hasmuk Gajar in Cape Town, South Africa. And Hasmuk asks, I noticed that our Zoom guests are bringing in LTs when they are in active speaker screen in this OH session. Tell us. Yeah, I noticed different lower thirds. Yeah. Where's that coming from? That's the Zoom. That's that's the Office Hours team that's producing these uh, SPX overlays on top of our video feeds. Um, We're coming in through a multi-camera Zoom room. So we actually have, so we have three uh, Blackmagic cameras uh, and then we're we're using a Zoom room to come in through multi-camera mode through uh, the multi-camera capture capability. Then we come into the session. But one of the things about that is that it means that you can't use your active speaker switch that you built for office hours. So uh, to title us, um, you're following uh, camera one for the audio feed. So we're sending that in. So it sounds like the office hours team has built out like SPX overlays to come in and give us titles um, so you can still see who we are. <laughs> It's a nice hint into all the work that's happening behind the scenes that nobody notices every day. And we appreciate our backstage team uh, tremendously here in Office Hours. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Greg Gibson in Washington, uh, D.C. And Greg asks, will Zoom ISO and Zoom Room NDI unify at some point uh, uh, or do you plan to continue supporting both? I think they offer opportunities for different use cases. So I plan to continue to have exciting roadmaps for both products in the future. So Zoom ISO, I think of as the tip of the spear where we're doing the the cutting edge capabilities on the latest architectures available and pushing the envelope of production. And then we take the lessons that we learned from building on that leading edge and we apply them back into the rest of the product portfolio. And this is a pattern you've seen over and over again from us this year about taking the lessons from Zoom OSC and Zoom ISO and the workflows that they fit into and migrating them into our platform. That was one of the things that we've talked about since the day that Liminal joined Zoom was that it's not just about OSC and ISO as the apps. It's about bringing the philosophy behind those apps into the Zoom platform. So I think there's exciting things for both form factors. You know, uh, ISO is really attractive as a meeting client downloadable application that you can throw in a software layer and use that Mac for something else later. Zoom Rooms is really good for taking devices and turning them into appliances, which can be great for repeated use or installation type use cases. So I think there's attractive form factors and, and I think it's important to support a variety of form factors, even if there's overlap in terms of the feature set the ability to express those features into different workflows is really driven by the variety of form factors. So I'd expect uh, a continued march of exciting features in both product lines. Obviously, stay tuned for the next Zoom Rooms update. I think you'll see some exciting stuff coming out um, when we get to the December, January, uh, I guess it's like a 5.13 release or something like that. So keep an eye out for that. And I think every quarter, you know, there's amazing things in in all of our products to take a look at. Um, So I, I look forward to continuing to support both. That feeds right into our next question, Alex. Next question comes from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. And Jonas asks, any news for Zoom Rooms, NDI in breakout rooms, a replacement for the depreciated API? Yeah, so, sorry. Yeah, all good. Um, I would, I'd, I'd stay tuned to the next Zoom Room release and I look forward to coming back uh, when that change log is available. There you go. 
Next question. Next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy asks, will Zoom Production Studio support lower third graphics? So I think yeah. the on only thing that we've communicated to customers so far is what we're doing in terms of layouts. So again, to recap, that's going to be arrangement, uh, aspect ratio, border colors, and backgrounds. Um, but that's the beginning, and that's what we've spoken about. Uh, of course, uh, Amina said in her session that you know we're continuing to look at how we do all sorts of amazing things. She talked about audio. She talked about graphics, right? So like where we are today is talking about the layout features, which are I think the most sorely needed right now. But if you are interested in doing things with graphics, we again we just announced uh, the SPX uh, Zoom app. Uh, so they're going to have a uh, an app in the Zoom app marketplace um, where you'll be able to do lower thirds and animations and things like that with the ease of use um, that you know their front end is trying to offer. So I would definitely say if, if that's the kind of thing you want to do today, maybe it's not. Um, you know, uh, I don't know when specifically SPX said they're going to release. I think they said sometime in November, but I would go grab that and get started right away. I think that's going to be the fastest way to start to play with complex graphics natively inside of the Zoom experience. We're really excited to have worked with Twomo on that and uh, glad to see them in our marketplace. Nice. Next question. Next question is from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. And Jonas asks, where should one reach out to Zoom events services at for the reaction slash chat tool as a service? Yeah. So uh, on our website, if you look throughout our website or if you end up just Googling for Zoom event services, you will find our page there. And we have a lot of information about our services. It doesn't talk right now about the chat overlay specifically, but it does kind of cover everything from consulting to support to production and everything in between. And this would fall in that category. So there's a contact form at the bottom there. Um, I'm actually looking forward to an update soon uh, to actually change that contact form and where it goes. So it gets a little to me a little bit faster, um, but that's definitely the, the best way to get into event services right now. From there, we're gonna reach back out. We're gonna start the conversation. And ultimately for something like that, you're gonna end up talking to Jonathan directly. Nice, thanks, Sam. Uh, next question. Next question is from Hasma Gajar in Cape Town, South Africa. And Hasma uh, asks, all of the new products and features announced at Zoomtopia, will all of it be available internationally? Yeah, so I don't think I can go through every, <laughs> every feature announcement <laughs> and what its distribution is going to be. I think the best thing for you to do is to contact either your sales representative or support to ask about availability for the features that you're interested in. Fair enough. Next question. Next question is from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. And Jonas asks, uh, so breakout rooms in webinars seem to be finally coming. Is there going to be going to be an update to breakout rooms in meetings? So we did discuss uh, that breakout rooms for webinars and we showed a screenshot of uh, kind of a design for what that looks like. Um, I don't remember exactly what the commitment date was on that or probably, uh, you know, they said something like next year, early next year. Um, and, uh, so I would, I'm excited for that as well. I think there's interesting use cases, uh, for breakout rooms and webinars. And we know that that's been a highly demanded feature, um, on for multiple years. Um, so I'm excited to see what that is. I, I don't think we've shared anything else about breakout rooms and where we're going on that. Um, I would definitely say, um, a lot of things that we use breakout rooms right now for could be potentially replaced with spots in the future. Um, so we haven't talked about zoom spots today. Um, shout out to, you know, Adam from our team, who is our lead us engineer on zoom spots. Uh, happy to take any questions about that as well. But, um, spots is something that, uh, we're really excited about for those sort of intentional, not the, those, uh, incidental experiences right now. Meetings are so like, we're coming here for a purpose and we're gathering to have a conversation, but the ambient sort of incidental experience is something that I think spots is going to, uh, innovate in that space. And so I think people use breakout rooms today for some of that stuff. 
I think there is a lot of innovation uh, in the form of Zoom spots versus breakout rooms for a more uh, incidental pop-in meeting kind of experience. And we noticed Jonathan sitting in said spot during the presentation. You were off in the oh, cafe. Oh, yeah, Adam was on screen, yeah, during the- Oh, Adam Toe was, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, very nice. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas asks, have there been any thoughts of integrating some production capabilities, NDI, ISO, audio, Fenwick, Framer at all, uh, into the mainstream client? Um, I could see that being uh, helpful for novice producers to lower the quote-unquote friction of building their pipeline. Yeah, so um, from I'm going to say that um, mainstream client uh, it's there in Zoom Rooms. Zoom Rooms is a mainstream Zoom client. It's, it, it is an official, you know, Zoom client form factor, um, as are Zoom OSC and Zoom ISO. Those are also client form factor official products from Zoom. So there's a variety of mainstream clients. Now, if you're specifically referring to the uh, meeting and webinar desktop client um, that holds the variety of things like, you know, team chat and all that other stuff and, um, you know, I think that there's a there is a time and a place for different features and workflows. I think that the decision that you're seeing us on right now is that there's a lot of interesting stuff in the Zoom room form factor, there's a lot of stuff in the meeting client form factor through SDK clients, um, and that the meeting and webinar client is really focused on like improving productivity and having a great personal experience using Zoom. I won't necessarily speak to you know what's coming in the future and, and consolidation and things like that, um, but I definitely think that you know um, it cuts both ways, right? If we were to put, and I think you can see this with Zoom Rooms today, right? Zoom Rooms is, uh, you know, fundamentally a hybrid teleconferencing product with production features in it, whereas Zoom ISO is a full production-focused application. The workflow is so different, right? Like, we're not going to turn the Zoom meeting and webinar client into something only for media professionals, right, to use. It has to have wide appeal from education to healthcare to meetings to business, future of work, future of all of those things, right? So it has to be... Um, able to serve all of those, right? So, but to serve a particular demographic really well, that's where we're so excited to go vertical with SDKs and APIs and other services that allow us to specialize and offer a full value chain workflow. So I would say that, yes, it's here in the mainstream clients. If you need, if, you know, if your form factor desire is to have a Zoom meeting client with NDI output capabilities, we have it and it's called Zoom ISO. So I, uh, it absolutely does exist. And then anytime I, I see like on Facebook or whatever, like, yeah, they, they added it to Zoom rooms, but they never added it to the meeting clients. Like, oh no, it's there. And, and the app is called Zoom ISO and allows us to do so much more um, by fully controlling the front end and back end and how it all interacts together. Um, so uh, yeah, I definitely think um, I, see the, I see the desire for multiple form factors and that's why it expresses itself in so many different ways. Okay, prepare yourself, guys. Hardball coming your way. Alice, next question. <laughs> next question is from Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. And Greg asks, I want a Zoomtopia t-shirt. Do you know a guy? Who so you knows actually a guy? don't have to know a guy on this one. There is a Zoomtopia merch store uh, where you can go and you can go get uh, various paraphernalia uh, related to Zoomtopia. So definitely uh, you should check that out. I, I just want to point out, though, that that I, I didn't get I didn't get my shirt. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Always somebody working too hard to go by the oh, distribution. No. Nice. Next question. Uh, Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana asks, uh, can the far end recording automatically upload to frame.io and, uh, and will that local uh, record do 4K? So I'll take the first question first. So um, one of the things that's really exciting about uh, getting video feeds into our cloud is that we have APIs that allow developers to access those recordings and bring them into their clouds. So um, there's a lot of opportunity for developers to be able to dovetail with 
double-end recording to build post-production workflows built on Zoom where you just log in and boom, there's all your Zoom recordings ready to go into an editor experience, right? So I don't know specifically about Frame.io. I think if that's something you want to see in Frame.io, you should definitely tell them you know, that, hey, Zoom has this awesome double-end recording feature. We'd love it to work with Frame.io. And I'm happy to, you know, our teams provide guidance to developers who are interested in including some of these features about how to go about architecting for some of that. So I think that'd be a great conversation to have. Um, and in terms of, you know, what resolution and some of the specific details of uh, what the local record quality profiles will be, uh, I don't have anything to share about it at that time. Um, so, uh, you know, I look forward to the feature being released and then being able to go into more details about specifics on how the feature works. Sam, did you want to follow up on that? Or are you, are you content with that? I'm content with that. One. <laughs> okay. 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 <laughs> uh, I know you said you wanted to start off, but let's go to that. We've got th three more questions. We'll run a little over to make sure we get everything covered here. Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, what drove the choice of the M2 MacBook Air for the Zoom ISO versus the MacBook Pro or Mac Studio? From what I've seen, the M2 is slower than the M1 Pro Max. Yeah, so frankly, I, we bought 58 MacBook Airs for this show uh, to do all the different sections on all the different stages, because again, we equipped all of the stages completely with the same setup. So we bought 58 of them. And that cost adds up really fast. Uh, we got these, you know, the, the MacBook M2 Air is $1,200 street price versus about three or 4,000. We did want to stay in a laptop form factor. So we weren't dealing with a bunch of external monitors, mice, keyboards on site. Uh, it was just a little bit more convenient to work with the way we were working. Um, but yeah, it, with the cost differences are, are pretty massive. So that's not to say that I'm just being cheap. It's that it's a significant piece. So we, we went through, we looked at the M2 Air and we found that the performance was very well acceptable, especially on some of the smaller things like my, what we call it system four was what was driving my Zoom up to the cloud. Like that, that didn't touch them performance wise. The Apple Silicon just does so well, especially with Zoom ISO and everything. Even all of our rooms that were just doing Zoom ISO and pinning down, no performance concerns whatsoever. Our heaviest rooms where we were actually rendering, uh, we had rooms where we were rendering like 30 gallery participants out via Siphon into Isadora rendering three different 1080p custom gallery views of them and then outputting that over deck links. And even that, uh, when we had our workflow down correctly, uh, where'd we end up? It was like 16% CPU. Yeah. <laughs> it was like nothing. Insanity. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So, um, I, and I will say that we, if you're interested for more information about the performance of Zoom ISO on different uh, generations of uh, Apple Silicon, we did a, a benchmark on all first gen Apple Silicon. It's available now at the Liminal website liminalet.com forward slash zoom ISO dash performance. Or if you go to the zoom ISO page and you scroll down a little bit, there's a link uh, where you can see a write up and graphs about the different performance and you know what that means. And oh, what, how does you know M1 and the Mac mini compare it to M1 Pro in a MacBook Pro or something like that. So you can, you can get a sense as, as to you know, what the general expectations would be about performance um, on that site. Next question. Next question is from Hersheed Trevetti in Daytona Beach, Florida. And Hersheed asks, during Zoomtopia, I heard that Timbaland uh, performed. For such a grand artist, producers like him, how would some of these new announcements of features help artists and others like Timbaland? So, I mean, if you haven't already, definitely check out uh, our guest keynote from day one. Our closing of day one was Timbaland and Eric uh, doing a, a talk on all the Zoom features today that he already uses. But I think if you... The workflows that apply to everyone kind of apply to him as well. And when you see how he used Zoom, I could definitely see him using something like Spots in the future to collaborate with his different production partners and be sitting kind of the way that's going to work. I think 
the different production workflows that we have with original sound and with other ways to pass video back and forth. Uh, not sure how much video work he does, but double end recording absolutely comes in anytime you need quality. So I, I think what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Nice. Next question. Last question for the hour is from Douglas Carmichael. He says, what drove the idea to bring the Zoom client to Tesla cars? Are you using any specific processing to make the audio from the car more intelligible? So the team worked really hard on it and are really excited about it um, on both sides. And, uh, you know, look forward to trying that out. I don't have any real specific details about that, but I know it's something that people uh, have spent a lot of time thinking about working on. Uh, and it's something that we're really excited about. Nice. Gentlemen, it was so great to have you here. We always look forward to this. And I, I maybe in 30 seconds, do each of you just want to wrap up kind of your thoughts for our audience about Zoomtopia and what, what it was that we should take away? And let's start with Jonathan, go to Sam, and then we'll finish with Andy real quick. So, Jonathan? Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll start small with this. Uh, you know, I think from a production standpoint, this was our this was our showcase hybrid event. We've talked about it a lot. We've We've had, had years worth of discussion about how to do good hybrid events, what works, what doesn't, um, both for main stage and for breakout sessions. Um, and we learned a lot from, from, from backstage and what we designed, what, what we should do, what we should do differently. Um, so I think both Sam and I have, have lots of ideas for next year's Zoomtopia, but also just for events and, and how we change things throughout this upcoming year and how we provide that feedback and guidance to you guys. So again, I do want to put a separate plug for Sam's uh, uh, webinars coming up in December, which are going to give more detail on Zoomtopia, both how we did it and uh, uh, some of the tech behind it. Um, Sam will probably speak a bit more about that. Um, but this was a great experience to be part of this, this hybrid experience and to really see how are we pushing engagement beyond just the simple uh, built-in tools within Zoom. How do we extend that using Zoom OSC? How do we extend that using a chat and, and reactions overlay tool? Uh, and then build that out into something that's that's more accessible for everybody, more inclusive. So, yeah, I, I think every every day, Jonathan and I have been walking back to the hotel talking about a couple things. One is that the event was successful. I think the things that we tried, the things that we thought might work, worked. And that's, we're so excited to see. Uh, but then from here, we can't stop. We have to keep innovating. We have to keep pushing. And so we're, we're looking to push in two different directions. One is how do we take it to the next level? How do we do the next big thing? How do we improve upon this? But then the second one is how do we improve the scalability of it and make it simpler, make it something that others can achieve on their events and bring it to, to the masses. Um, so yeah, just my turn to plug those webinars in early December, we're going to have a series of three webinars. First one's going to look at Zoom Events Native tips and tricks that went into the conference. That's going to be led by uh, Robin, the PMN, and then Megan, who on my team was the one who ran Zoom Events for this show, which was an absolutely Herculean task. And she's just a beast. Uh, but then the second and third are going to be led by Jonathan and I. We're going to dig into like literal Zoom ISO, Ada Mini, Zoom computer. How do we do a, a hybrid session in a room physically showing the tech table? And then the third one's going to be all about uh, these engagements, these chat overlays, these reactions, how we did these things. And hopefully we're gonna be able to just really technically dive deep on those. Andy, and, your wrap ups? Absolutely, and for me, this is a, Zoomtopia was so exciting because it was an opportunity to show versus speak about. So we could actually say concretely that we've walked the walk um, and we've demonstrated 
um, a lot of exciting capabilities. And it's, you know, for me, it's exciting because, you know, we talk a lot about, oh, well, you could do this sort of thing, or you could try this kind of workflow, but then to get it all together, get everybody on site and actually say, okay, well, how would we actually do this and put something together? Um, it's been so exciting and it was exciting. You know, the energy in the room was really great. I've heard good things about the online experience as well. And there's, you know, I guess let's say the last thing that really excites me about it is there's so much more to improve on, right? Like we know that we've we've taken a big step forward, but we can see, you know, down the road, all the other things that, you know, need to come in place to be able to do that. So, you know, um, and this was true for us, you know, back at Liminal, it was, you know, services informing products, products informing services, working back and forth between the teams. This was a really exciting for me personally, I'll say between my colleagues and, uh, you know, people who work on my events engineering team and who work with the event services team with Jonathan and Sam, it was a great synergy, right? And, and I think that, you know, from a sort of a corporate perspective, like it was, it was really beautiful thing to watch. You know, services team coming to our engineers with requests, us building the, you know, the chat interfaces and customized services and servers and tunnels and all of that stuff, and then bringing it back to them, and also saying things like, "Hey, there's an opportunity here, or what if we added a feature like that? What would you do with it?" And then to see them embrace Zoom OSC and Zoom ISO and Isadora and all these custom tools and really bring them forward in a concrete event that was, you know really, really popular for me, that was super exciting. So I look forward to seeing all of you doing very similar things in the future with this knowledge, differentiating yourselves from your competition and moving events forward. So really, really exciting week. I think we we're all completely exhausted, uh, but we were very, very happy to do it. And it was great to spend the time with you this morning. Thank you so much. I th I thank you all. And this is just a personal thing. You know, so much of my life has switched to Zoom now. I was doing voiceover sessions the other day and client meetings and things like that. You guys are working on something I think that's very important for, for a large part of the globe now. So thank each and every one of you for all of your contributions to making our lives easier. Uh, I do have some, some follow-up things. First of all, thank you to everybody who was on the panel today. Uh, thank you to our back end, all the producers who asked these fabulous questions. We appreciate you very, very much. And, uh, the people in the back end who are working really hard to make all these things happen, the changes on the flies and things like that. A few promotional real quick notes. Don't forget that it is today, Thursday. That means Isadora this week. Uh, so right after this, uh, L. Wilson and Spyro and will be in the breakout room. Uh, Friday, the Office Hours 2.5 update will be our topic. And so uh, if you want to talk about the next major update to that. Also, don't forget the bonus uh, Zoom ISO lab. Three more fun-packed hours of Zoom testing starts at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, and 10 p.m. UTC. Thank you all for being here today. We're going to get out of your hair and let you go on to the rest of your life, but we'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. One hundred and sixty-seven thousand miles. Two hundred and seventy killed it on the traversal. The Tlaloc traversal. I whisper into a so laugh mic. Is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> you get, you get. I think you get global services with that many miles. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not quite global services. Not in San Francisco. Maybe in Pittsburgh. Clyde, guys, is that whisper mode for that mic? It's a whisper mode. I'm whispering very quietly, all the way from Monterey. Oh, your bees are in deep trouble. I allowed to whisper. There's John's whisper loud but required. I can't hear anything. Guys, thank you so much. Get some sleep.